Well, Taylor Swift's new album is out. Wait, listeners, don't turn off yet. <laughs> let me uh, let me finish. I just want to say something about Taylor Swift because she, she gets all the press with with her new album. I don't know; she's a big pop star. But should Taylor Swift is she the type of artist who we would talk about on adult music, even though we just have anyway her music? I'm gonna say, you know, all of her songs in the past were always about how terrible her boyfriend was. Hmm. You know, so it's always like his fault, and that's not adult music. Adult music is when you realize it's you, and you start singing about you know how, how you messed it up. Oh. That's when Taylor Swift is going to be on the adult music podcast when she does finally comes to her senses and does her Patsy Cline covers album. Hmm, maybe age <laughs> thirty-five. I don't know how old is she. Now? Maybe twenty no more idea. years. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. I haven't heard the new album yet, though. Yeah. I will listen to it, though, just to see what's going on. Okay. So You can tell me all about it. <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. You're not going to be interested, though. I just know it. <laughs> okay. Probably not. It won't meet the criteria for adult music. I think I just kind of described something about what adult music might be, you know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Music that That's... gives you honest revelations about yourself. Oh, yeah. There it is. Wow. And in which the uh, singer or the... Musicians are making honest revelations about themselves, and you can always tell when they're doing that because it's generally good. It doesn't register as kind of, you know, like this person's trying to put on musical airs or anything like that. It's funny. You can tell, mm. like, when someone's not being real in music. It's yeah. it's very it's a very honest medium. Yes, indeed. Mm. And we are honest here about the music that we like on the Adult Music Podcast, where we, well, we have are, yeah. music for the mature mind and... With those deep Taylor Swift thoughts over there is Mike. On that <laughs> that's that's me. <laughs> Got one ear to the pop music, uh, yes. really rock music kind of. I'm your thing, cynical, but, you know, co-host Russ over here, who will uh, hold off on the Taylor Swift listening for the time being. Anyway, yeah, yeah that's the big pop music album of the uh, of the of the autumn, shall we say? Right. Anyway, tonight we've got kind of a stringy thing going on. And yeah. uh, a lot of guitar and uh, some harpsichord, too. And one harpsichord in there, because I couldn't get two, three <laughs> guitar uh, albums that I wanted to do. So I put a harpsichord, since that's a plucked instrument, too. You don't pluck these strings with your fingers. Right. But when you push the key down, the um, a, a plectrum pops up and plucks the string. It's not like a piano where a hammer hits the string. Right. Um, an interesting thing about keyboard instruments is they're in every category of music. The organ would be a wind instrument. The harpsichord would be a string instrument, I guess, and the um, piano would be a percussion instrument. Yeah. We just don't have a brass piano. That's the only thing, or a brass keyboard instrument. Mm. Some of those organs get brassy, though, through the pipes. No, they can get yeah. a brassy kind of yeah. you know, sound, but yeah. Right. I guess wind and brass are kind of, they overlap a little bit. Yeah. You know. All the bass is covered there. Yeah. The piano. All you got to do is play keyboard and you're okay. Yeah. All right, before we get into the selections for tonight, I will remind our listeners that in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the recordings we're going to talk about. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform. You can follow us there at username Adult Music Podcast. You can get the playlist and podcast in one place. Also, if you can't see the full description, 
or list on whatever app you're listening to us on, you can always come over and check us out on our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, and everything's easy to follow there. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the recommended podcast lists, and that helps us grow our audience, makes us happy. You can also come over and see us on Facebook. We've got a page there. You can give some extra info, uh, new releases throughout the week, and uh, leave a message or comment there if you like. And uh, if you'd like to contact us directly with any other comments, questions, or uh, suggestions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, that's all one word, at gmail.com. And we'd also like to invite you to check out another podcast that's Something Came From Baltimore by Tom Gowker. And it's not about Baltimore, but rather it's a jazz, blues, and R&B interview podcast. And that features interviews with a lot of musicians that we've uh, discussed recordings from, such as Todd Marcus, Joey DeFrancisco. As a matter of fact, why don't you listen to Tom describe it now? Gerald Albright, Maria Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist. That's something came from Baltimore. And be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly. There you go. And the link's in the top of the description there. So check that out uh, for some new interviews that come out every week. Oh, well, I don't know that this would qualify as adult music, but we just heard that uh, Jerry Lee Lewis just died pioneering yeah. uh rock and roll uh you know sing yeah. you know singer pianist pianist yeah and general wild man the killer is that what they called him yeah because i think his wives uh, all met uh, early demises oh yeah he had a lot of <laughs> um odd uh, things yeah. going on <laughs> yeah, there's, i use a, a video of his <laughs> in uh early rock kind of uh, class Give that a class. I, I teach yeah. and uh, it's great it has maybe the first rock pyrotechnic show in Great Balls of Fire <laughs> when he Actually, hits that lyric a flame explodes from the back of the stage as his hair is bouncing uh, on top of his head yeah, it's pretty interesting <laughs> is it is like a line of fires or is it just one little burst of uh, one pipe or something yeah it's pretty unimpressive <laughs> it's like a little a little flame shoots up there yeah but it was, it was the a time, long time ago yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah we hadn't figured out all those uh <laughs> giant explosions that no. they have that are so regular now at certain shows yeah. anyway all right so what do you think we're gonna we have no we have no aside from that we don't have anything else really we're okay no uh, no other deaths in uh, classical or jazz that we know about this week so and anyway, let's get let's get into it we're going into uh plucked strings basically and this first one so i've got two guitar recordings but the first one's a harpsichord and it's from the baroque era which most harpsichord recordings but not all are mm. and it's called um les mables une journée avec louis cans oh. 15th louis the 15th i like the way you That's, say that yeah <laughs> by the way i just let me just i just want to say i want to ask all the uh the american women who have been sending me their undergarments in the mail because they enjoy my french pronunciation so much to please stop doing that because uh i'm just not that kind of guy <laughs> so 
Mike yeah, would rather he, get CDs in the mail. That's yeah, all. I'd rather get CDs in the mail. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yes. Okay. Anyway, L'Aimable, which means the lovable one, and that's, there's going to be a tune on this by that title. Uh, the harpsichordist is uh, Celine Frisch, and uh, I like her a lot, so I wanted to um, talk about this album. So I've heard uh, several of her other ones. And uh, this is on the Alpha label. Um, the booklet note for this quotes a film that I really like, uh, Jacques Demy's film, Podan et le Prince, which is called Donkey Skin and the Prince in English, or just Donkey Skin, I think. Mm. It's kind of like a live-action fairy tale with Catherine Deneuve is in it. I recommend it. It's very good. And um, there's a line that the prince says to the uh, Donkey Skin, who is the woman in her, when, you know, she's been, had a spell cast on her, I guess. And um, he says to her, but how shall we cope with all of these delights? And um, Frisch says in her note that this is something the harpsichordists who find themselves attracted to the age of Louis XV have to uh, say to themselves, there is so much music and they're all, if not great music, they're del delightful. They're really nice. Okay, mm -hmm. they're kind of decorative. They're elegant. And how do you put all this together into a program? Well... What Celine Frisch has um, decided to do is um, assemble a program where the titles of the works have something to do with um, imagining a day in the life of Louis XV and you are there with him. And it just follows him through the day. Uh, and the very first piece on the um, album is called um, Le, Veille, uh, Le Reveille Matin, which means the alarm clock. That's hmm. by Francois Couperin. And... Um, there's an alarm clock effect in it. I guess mechanical uh, things were really popular at the time, as we know, in the Baroque era. So they, they had, I guess they had mechanical alarm clocks. So we start the day with waking up, with Louis XV waking up. Um, this particular piece wouldn't be a bad way to wake up either. It's rather nice. Um, the alarm goes off at the 16-second mark. You could probably figure this out on your own if you've never heard this before, but um, there it is. Um, right away, I notice on this... Um, recording there's a really strong bass note when she gets really low on the harpsichord hmm. notes on this particular harpsichord I'm not sure there's a there's a picture in the booklet of her it's it's a two manual harpsichord but when she gets she's obviously playing the louder manual on this one and when she gets to the um, the bass notes it really just kind of boomed out of the speaker it's kind of a boomy uh, recording and that happens in a few other tracks too but not all of them Probably because there's not really any low bass in a lot of them. But I thought that was a little distracting. Mm -hmm. So it's recorded in an odd way. And my stereo came out that way. It was a little more tame in the headphones, but I still, the bass really uh, stood out. Um, the upper register in this harpsichord is chimey and delightful. And um, to me, it sounded like the mic was aimed more at the bass. Hmm. And uh, the bass had an unnatural weightiness to it in this particular um, track. Anyway, um, I had I had to check that my subwoofer wasn't on when I was listening to this, and it wasn't. Uh, so that was just the natural sound. I heard it in the headphones too, but it was a little less pronounced. Um, let's see. Um, she one of the things that Celine Frisch does. She takes these little pauses before each shift into another section, and will often change the sound too. Like she'll go from one manual to the other, and I think she can probably adjust the sound on those manuals too somehow because there are a lot of different sounds mm -hmm. in these pieces that this um 
this harpsichord can get. It's it, I'm pretty amazed to think that it's only one harpsichord throughout the whole album because um, it sounds like a lot of different yeah. ones. Yeah. Um, this this famous piece is uh, taken at an enjoyable, leisurely pace. Um, most harpsichordists hammer on the alarm clock sound like it's like the hammer on your harpsichord, like ringing the bells. <laughs> um, but uh, she doesn't do that. Uh, she just plays it at speed without any undue force, and it registers really well. Couperin was a great composer. There's no need to help him there. So I liked this performance, except for the, I thought the bass was too heavy on the recording. All right, anyway, moving on. Second track, Francois d'Agincourt. Um, this is a from his um, Pièce de Clavecin collection, Premier Ordre, Allemande, La Couronne. So I guess the Couronne is a um, crown, and uh, I guess Louis XV is putting his crown on. I wonder if actual kings actually do that. They get out of bed and they wear their crown all day. <laughs> I, I can't imagine that that happens. <laughs> Only when they're in the, on, in the throne room, you know, having guests, I think they'd wear that. At least they need an assistant to put it on for them, I think. Yeah, yeah. they're very heavy, apparently. They have all yeah. these jewels and diamonds and stuff on them. Anyway, this has a more familiar harpsichord sound to this piece. Um, there's no chime quality for this one. It's just like a regular harpsichord sound like you heard on the Adams Family, for example. <laughs> um, that's the sound most people know as the harpsichord. Um, the bass is still registering strongly here. This is an elegant and genteel piece, elegantly played a pretty straightforward Baroque era piece. There's some ear-catching passing harmonies on occasion, but it's yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It's okay. This is one of the things that's going to happen with this album. It's such an an um an assemblage of you know works by great composers and works by lesser-known composers. And some of those lesser-known composers, their works are all really good, but they're not as interesting mm -hmm. often. So you kind of you know I I think a, a um. How can I say a harpsichordist like Celine Frisch can do a lot to put those uh, works across, but uh, you have to really be into the harpsichord to like some of these. There's some nice like passing harmonies and stuff that'll really catch your ear if you're listening closely, but if you're listening casually, I think these might just pass you by in a lot of cases. Mm. All right. Uh, the third track is also Francois d'Agincourt, uh, same uh, book. This is the Courant, which is a faster sort of Baroque dance. This one has a thinner sound than the uh, previous track, and there are a lot of ornaments in the melodic line. This is um, something that's very characteristic of French Baroque music, and Frisch really does put a lot of <laughs> uh, ornaments in there. Um, it's uh, played relatively quickly, quickly, given that there's so much ornamentation going on. You would think that would slow down the line, um, but not in this case. I often think of ornamentations when I hear them. so many of them like this. I often think of it as sort of like a crown with a lot of jewels on it as opposed to just like bare wire or something, you know. Hmm. It's, it just sounds like ornamentation. Ornaments. That's what jewelry is, really. Yeah. You know, you can think of them as little jewels sparkling in the line, in the melodic line. Ooh, I like that. Hmm. <laughs> I'll have, have to work that into my uh, <laughs> further descriptions <laughs> anyway. All right. Fourth track, again, D'Agincourt. Same book, Saraband. La Magnifique. Oh, wouldn't we all like to be called Magnifique? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, this is this is even a different sounding instrument again. It has a fuller, brighter sound than on the previous track. Uh, the Saraband elegantly sways. The rhythm is outlined strongly in this performance, which is a quality that always meets with my approval. I really think that Baroque dancers should have a discernible, hmm. danceable rhythm. 
as opposed to being just like, oh, listen to this cool harmony. <laughs> you know, I mean, you'll hear those harmonies anyway. Mm -hmm. So give it the the rhythm will make it more interesting to listen to. Um, there's a change to a more muted tone at about three minutes and eight three minutes and eight seconds into the track that lasts until the end. Then we get on track five a piece by a composer who I only learned about three years ago, Pierre Dandrieu. D a n d r i e u. There's a great. Uh, oh, I don't remember who the artist is. Anyway, but there was a great um, recording of string quartets by him that I listened to a few years ago. This one's called uh, Carillon ou Cloche. Uh, a carillon is. Um, we know what that is. It's sort of like a a set of bells, a mechanical kind of set of bells. Like you often see them in on churches or in some kind of public place, and they ring and they're really sort of. Um, it's kind of a mechanical bell sound. And the this interpretation is actually really good. I enjoyed this a lot. Um, the the bell sounds begin the piece. They descend in a line mechanically, as in a carillon. They keep um, repeating right. carillon, I guess, in English. We just use the same word. And a carillon-type melody with accompaniment follows. At a minute and 37 seconds, the figuration gets more rapid, and the sound at times goes down to something surprisingly muted, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, from this, a carillon figuration eventually emerges from the figuration. There are a lot of bell figures here as well. I'm a big fan, by the way, of bell sounds in music, and especially on instruments that decay like the piano or the guitar. Um, I like these slow tolling bells at the 2 minutes and 15 seconds onward. And at 2 minutes and 52 seconds, there's a fantastic effect by uh, Celine Frisch here. Um, it sounds like the carillon is losing its mechanical momentum. It yeah. starts slowly slowing down. Um, mm -hmm. And this is really beautifully portrayed in this performance. It actually sounds even like it's slowing down mm -hmm. evenly. It's pretty remarkable. Um, she has a Frisch has an unerring sense of pulse and rhythm. Okay. So we've had the bell, we've had the the, the uh, crown, we woke up. Now we're going to go on a hunt. Le plaisir de la chasse is the next part of the program. And this is mostly a bunch of a suite of works. In fact, all of it is a suite of works by Louis-Claude Dacan. Now you might think you don't know Louis-Claude Dacan's music, but he's most famous for a set of organ works called Noels that get played in church every Christmas. So you've probably heard one or two oh. of them. They mm. always get into that mix um, of right. what the organist is playing uh, during the Christmas season in church. So if you go to church and you have an organ in your church, you've probably heard at mm. least one of those. They play them here in Japan too. I've heard, oh. I've heard them here. Yeah. Anyway, this is completely different than that. <laughs> this is um, <laughs> the pleasures of the chase. The first one, uh, l'appel de chasseur, which is the um, call of the um, the hunters, I guess, and. Um, Chasseur? I don't know. Anyway, fanfare et rondo, en rondo. Uh, it's a trumpet hunting call, um, and Scarlatti uh, trafficked in this sort of figure often in his sonatas, and we hear it here, like the, the horn call on the harpsichord. And uh, next after that, we get marche, which could mean many things. It means walking. It could even mean march. And it could, I don't think it means a gallop, though, but it does sound more <laughs> cheerful and... Hmm fast so I don't know it looks like a, it sounds like a fast walk could even be people riding horses but there's a different word for that anyway um the next one l'appel de chien this is calling the dogs uh, we're hearing that heavy bass note that registers strongly here um 
I'm wondering what we're hearing here. Is this a horn call that calls the dogs, or is it actually the song and sound of the dogs barking that we're supposed to be evoked here? I, I think it might be a horn. It's got a lot of short repeating phrases. Um, let's see. You know, you know what that reminds me of is um, at the end of um, Sergeant Pepper, uh, that song "Good Morning, Good Morning," where you hear the horns and then oh, the okay. dogs barking, yeah, and then yeah. it goes into uh, the reprise <laughs> of Sergeant Pepper. So that's kind of what I imagine that was happening here all right next track um let's see le, le prise du cerf a surf is a stag so they're hunting a stag um fast scale patterns with bass marking time at the beginning of each measure in this brief um movement la curé uh curé is the uh, quarry i always like that word we don't really use that in american english the english use it the quarry the quarry okay yeah, yeah. Um, there's a merry hunting horn quality to this. It's played spaciously and lightly, but comes in loudly for the final statement of the theme. And the last track, uh, this is track 11, um, Rejouissance, which is kind of rejoicing, Rejouissance de Chasseur, the rejoicing of the hunters for having made the kill. Uh, contentment and joy, and this really is full of contentment and joy this movement it's a very bright sounding and bounding rhythm uh the motifs include a lot of repeated notes and chords at two minutes and 18 seconds we hear a new section followed following a full cadence which kind of surprised me um this must be the rejoicing section um it's played with a muted sound and has a mechanical music box quality to it it continues as variations each with some virtuosic quality to it there's a long pause between this and the next piece, because it's the end of the section. So it's in two sections. The first one is, um, yeah, Rejouissance de Chasseur. Okay. All right, next, we get into a uh, promenade bucolique et amoureuse. So we're uh, sort of walking out in the um, countryside with a, with some lovely ladies. And uh, I don't know, this, this section wasn't terribly impressive to me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'll explain why. The first piece by Couperin, Francois Couperin, is called uh, La Gazouillement which is the gazouille is the twittering of birds in French. Mm. Yeah. So twittering, I guess if uh, Twitter was a French company, it would be called gazouille. Okay. <laughs> Imagine saying that all the time. Anyway, it's got a genteel light theme played with a timbre on the bright side. Then we get to the, to, for me, the low point of the album, although it's not bad. I heard this again. And I liked it more the second time. Joseph Nicolas Pancras Royer. Um, his pièce de clavecin. The piece is called Le Tendre Sentiment, which is a very promising title. It means the tender sentiment. So we're going to woo the lady at this point. But I think uh, this piece puts her to sleep. <laughs> anyway, it's it's played with a very light touch, this piece. The timbre is slightly different from the previous piece. Uh, Frisch has a lot of sounds up her sleeve, and she uses them a lot here. It changes subtly at 45 seconds. After this section, the texture lightens even more as the harpsichord heads into the upper end at around the 1 minute 50 mark. There's a lot of space in this work. It's slow. And due to its slow speed and the spaciousness of the harmony, um, I love the way Frisch is able to subtly change the sound of the instrument between sections. At 3.51, another 3 minutes 51 seconds, another major section ends with a cadence and long pause. The music wanders back to the main uh, theme of the work. And there's a coda at the end with a bass-heavy re resolution to the tonic chord. Now, the thing about this piece, the Royer, it's slow. 
and there's not much of interest happening. He's not really a terribly um, inventive composer. There is kind of a cool, in the opening, you hear the uh, line descending to a cadence, but it it's kind of a false cadence, and it, it, the material repeats without going to the cadence, but then it goes to the cadence after the second time. I thought that was nifty, but I don't know. There wasn't all that much to hold attention here. It's also a six-minute uh, piece. Hmm. Anyway, the next piece is also by Royer. It's called Les Mables. Now, this is the title track of the album. Um, he <laughs> first uses a brighter sound here. So the lovable one, Les Mables, okay? Brighter sound here as broken chord figuration provides accompaniment for the melody. Uh, there's an interesting, mu- interesting muted sound on the lowest bass note in between a minute and a minute to 30 seconds. You hear it a few times. Sounding like it's being stopped from sustaining, like maybe... Someone's hand is on the, the harp inside the harpsichord. At 2 minutes and 11 seconds, a big uh, bass-heavy cadence is reached, and after a long pause, we go into a new section of the work. The tempo of this entire piece is on the slow side. Frisch's playing is musical enough to sustain interest, but I feel like this might be too slow. As the movement goes on at this speed for over six minutes, to me it started to drag, and the first time I heard this, I was really tired, so I was kind of had to stop here. <laughs> I was drifting off. Um, I did hear it again. I liked it a little more. Anyway, track 15 is we get back to Francois Couperin, one of the great composers of the era. Um, this is his piece, Le Rosignol and Amour, The Nightingale in Love. <laughs> <laughs> nightingale, ever present in European music for hundreds of years. I wonder if people still can identify a nightingale in mm. Europe. I don't think I could. I mean, I guess I could look on YouTube and hear what it sounds like but it just never occurs to me to do so uh we don't have nightingales here in japan we do have um crows though (laughs) yeah we do (laughs) they sound a lot different than than a nightingale (laughs) anyway this is also a slow piece over six minutes long there are a lot of a there's a lot of appealing ornamentation again think of them as little sparkling jewels in the melodic line maybe like a diamond on a finger or something like that added to what sounds like a set of variations. Um, This is not as austere as the previous work, but by the fourth minute, it's starting to drag because I was sleepy, I think. Uh, Again, it's a fairly slow tempo, tempo, maybe too slow. Yeah, we get a little languorous when we're walking with our our lady love in the uh, bucolic um, outdoors, I guess, but... uh, yeah, I don't know, I'm going to be doing that tomorrow, so maybe I'll bring yeah, a harpsichord recording along with me and uh, yeah. see if it makes any uh, moods. We'll see. <laughs> you, you can try it out. I don't know that it'll, yeah. this particular one will work, <laughs> no. though. Yeah, no no offense to um, Frisch's playing, which is very good. Anyway, le jeu et le divertissement, divertissement de la cour is the uh, next section, and we get another Francois Cooper on piece, Les Amusements. This has kind of a similar feel to the famous um, Barricade Mysterieuse by the same composer, which is a pretty famous work. If you don't know it, go to YouTube and listen to it. This this sounds similar. It's just got a different sort of um, theme to it, but it's all in the middle to low end of the harpsichord, and it's all repeating patterns, sort of. I like the low end chimey quality to this and also to the Barricade Mysterieuse, which isn't on this album. Don't let me confuse you. There are a lot of ornaments in the various lines. I like the whole lower part of the keyboard timbre that this piece has. It's well articulated with slight pauses in the lines on occasion. And there's a nice key change at around 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Listen for that. All right. 
Next piece, we go back to Francois Dagincourt. We heard him at the beginning. This is called Le Colin Maillard, which is which means it kind of translates as uh, blind man's buff. I always wondered what that meant. Blind man's buff. 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 Bluff, maybe, but not buff. Yeah, I've heard that people say buff. It's it's both. Mm. I looked it up. I mean, it mm. could be bluff or buff. I could see buff because you're wearing, uh, to like, play this game, you're wearing a blindfold and you're trying to uh, uh, find the other like people who are running away from you, you know? Blind man in the buff. Yeah, that's what I was no. thinking because yeah. I imagine this <laughs> naked guy with a with a blindfold on would be horrible. I wouldn't yeah. want to play that game. <laughs> okay. Some sort of initiation right or something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, we all know this game from childhood. You know, been played through the centuries. Anyway, this particular piece has a nice harmony in the beginning and a bouncy rhythm. At uh, well, maybe the blind maybe it means the blind man is buff, like he's a big muscly guy, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, could be. <laughs> okay. Anyway, back to the music. <laughs> okay. At the thirty-second mark, we're high up in the harpsichord's range. I like the sudden weightlessness of the sound um, when we get high up, then the bass sort of disappears. The opening repeating theme, this seems to move like a rondo, is apparently the blind man's buff game or blind man's bluff. I've heard both. I looked in the dictionary, it had both. It said bluff hmm. or buff. So there you go. Yeah. Track 18, Claude Benigne Balbastre. This is an entire suite of dances. Air choisi mise en pièce de clavecin par Monsieur Balbatre, suite de Pygmalion par Monsieur Rameau. Okay, so hmm. he's taking this um, from a suite from a, an opera, Pygmalion by um, Rameau. Pygmalion is an old uh, Greek story about um, a man who creates like a woman, sort of. I guess it might be an original Frankenstein kind of story. <laughs> it's not scary, but um, anyway. Pygmalion from the old Greek myth. Um, and it's a, Rameau made it an, into an opera. Greek themes were really um, popular in the Baroque era. And here, Balbasto is um, making a suite out of some of its themes. First, we have the overture. This is all one track. Overture, overture Gavotte, Pantomime, and Gigue. Usually, we get these in four separate tracks, but they're all together here with pauses in between. Um, it starts with a forward-moving overture. The characteristic feature is a theme with quick repeated chords. Uh, the repeated note figure becomes thematic at about a minute and 40 seconds. The new section is very lively and active. And I thought Frisch's um, playing here was really impressive. Uh, the overture section is very impressive. The Gavotte Gracieuse starts at 4 minutes and 30 seconds if you're keeping score. And it's a lot lighter with a playful theme in the right hand and counter melody in the left. The middle section of this is played muted, sounding as though we're hearing it through gauze, but not because of the recording, because of the um, sound that the harpsichordist has chosen here. It sounds a bit more distant, then we get a full sound repeat of the opening gavotte theme. The pantomime starts at 7 minutes and 29 seconds into the track. It's highly ornamented and lively, with a few heavy bass notes in there. It sounds playful and is attractive. Um, Frisch, as I said earlier, is very good at making rhythms springy, and that brings out a lot of the appeal of this particular piece and really all the pieces. The jig starts at 9 minutes and 21 seconds and is a full-mastered quick jig like some of Bach's, some of my favorite ones by Bach. Highly appealing, sounds fun to play, 
the, the jig that is. The rhythm is appealingly springy and all detail registers. At 10 minutes and 48 seconds, a more introspective section starts, but by 11 minutes, we're dancing our way to the end of the section, which repeats and brings us to the end of the jig and the entire work. And then track 19, Le Coucher du Roi is the name of the section, and the, the king is now going to bed again. And this piece is uh, by Michel Corrette. It's called um, Les Etoiles, The Stars. So it's nighttime. And uh, this work has a really charming quality. Um, it It's light, and it seems to evoke the sparkling of the stars in the night sky. Give it a listen. Just right at the beginning, you'll hear this. It's got a quick circling figuration sort of portraying this. At 59 seconds, new material, still circling, is heard. It's slower. Then we're back to the opening. And Frisch uses a light, bright sound here. I like this work a lot and uh, the performance as well. It's charming and a lovely send-off to sleep and to the end of the album. You could listen to this before going to bed too and probably be sent off into uh, your nightly oblivion <laughs> as well. It's really beautiful. Anyway, Light Charms and Evocative Playing by Celine Frisch. On this album, she has the ability to make one believe one is in the era that the music was composed in. I kind of go back and I always I guess it the program just had me thinking oh the king is doing this now and here I am hanging out with him she's going to gave me that feeling she's exceptionally good at putting the rhythm of the more danceable pieces across a quality I'm always attracted to um, I liked about half of this program I felt that the promenade bucolique section of, of the program started to drag with some long slow pieces that rather overstayed their welcome you know fine as they were um, that said, I like the structuring idea of the program. It's a good way to give all these works coherence on a single program. It was a kind of a nice idea to assemble this. As a Celine Frisch album, I would recommend some other ones before this one, but I liked this one enough. And um, if you like the harpsichord, uh, if the program appeals, give it a listen because I thought it was really interesting. And you'll get to hear her you know, her different sounds and her rhythmic quality to her playing, which I think are very appealing. You can get a lot of um, good tips out of good harpsichord playing from this album. Yeah, her playing is excellent throughout, especially her snappy ornaments are very impressive. Um, they add a lot to the pieces and played with great flair. But the material is a mix. Some of it's a bit trite, I found. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Even the, the king has, uh, you know, like maybe he's brushing his teeth during this theme or something. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't really need so. to see the king brushing yeah. his teeth. <laughs> uh, but there are other pieces that are enjoyable. Does, does he brush his teeth or does somebody else brush his teeth? I don't know. And how does that work with kings? I really don't know. You know, I'm kind I of know. curious. No idea. Yeah. Um, but the more enjoyable ones, they do have interesting multiple lines to follow in the compositions. Yeah. Uh, that's really good. And overall, as you mentioned, there's impressive variety of tones from this instrument it seems right. to be able to do a lot more than you know a lot of other harpsichord in single instruments i've heard so i was impressed right. with the different uh, registers and tonal qualities uh, and uh, different uh, dynamics she got i mean i know that's done mainly mechanically uh, but this instrument is uh, under her command really well so if you like harpsichord there's probably a you know at least half of this program that uh will be outstanding to you. Yeah. So, and on now to the guitar, what we've all been waiting for. Um, the first, uh, my first album here is a really fantastic record called uh, Saudade um, by uh, a young guitarist by the name of Plinio Fernandez. He's Brazilian. And Saudade means um, uh, memories, I guess, right? 
a soldat is a memory mm. or a recollection, I guess, or something. And it's on the deck of gold label, which is kind of interesting. They didn't put it on their regular imprint. I guess this has to something to do with um, crossover or maybe world music or something like that. Okay. I mean, this is really a combination of Brazilian popular song and uh, Brazilian classical music. And it's not even all Brazilian. There are a few. There's a we'll, when we get to it, I'll mm. let you know. Um, Anyway, this album is kind of is kind of a picture on the cover of this uh, rather attractive young man playing his guitar, and um, it's kind of like a pop album because there are no booklet notes. There are pictures of him inside it, <laughs> and uh, we have all these. All right, now, what he's basically doing on this album is playing like the greatest hits of Brazil. These are all extremely well known songs to Brazilians, and some of them are well known to us as well. Um, but I'll. I've done a bit of research on them. I didn't know them all because I'm not like this Brazilian music aficionado, but I, I'll let you know what I know, what I learned this week about these songs. Anyway, he's playing an acoustic guitar and boy, what a great sound. He's uh, He's got a really natural feel, does Plinio Fernandez for this music. Let's go through it and we'll um, see what we've got. The first one is by, um, I wonder how you'd say this guy's name because he's Brazilian. Jacob Bittencourt. Bittencourt. I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, the piece is called Asanado, and it's arranged by Sergio Assad, who is a um, hmm. currently living a Brazilian um, composer, guitarist, and um, he's arranged most of the um, the pieces on this album. He's still alive. He was born in 1952. He's a little older than us now. And this is um, a choro composition. Choro in... Um, uh, Brazilian music is it means cry or lament um, but a choro is uh, paradoxically is usually a very lively composition um, like this one um, so it's a it's a kind of popular Brazilian song and um, is a choro and we actually heard some of them in um, in uh, uh, Vila Lobos's music too he did a few of these too anyway this has a lively melody and very natural feel to it. The first thing that struck me about Fernandez's playing is how well he fits into this idiom. Whenever there's sort of like some sort of idiomatic playing to do, uh, classical composers can really stiffen up. They do, like, for example, like Viennese orchestras do Viennese music exceptionally well, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, they just live, they just breathe and eat that stuff like all their lives. Um, not a well Viennese, I guess the the whole melody of you know the rhythm of Mozart and the waltz is kind of we we've all got a good sense of it by now. But a lot of the music that uh, we don't from countries that we don't hear much of in classical music, they don't really get these uh, melodies. I remember hearing European orchestras do uh, Rhapsody in Blue like in the seventies oh. uh, and eighties, and they just couldn't get the the swing feel. I mean, they get they have it now yeah. after all this time because not. Jazz has become a really big thing in Europe. But back then, they didn't really have a sense of it. It was really interesting. Mm, I think um, Brazilian music needs a certain looseness to it. That, yeah, but um, it also needs, yeah. It, it needs doesn't a, make it yeah. too metronomically, you know, sterile. And you do hear that sometimes, you know, when, when people just perform it as yeah. it's another classical piece. But he, he has, as you say, a, a little bit of looseness to his style that makes yeah. the music sort of breathe and sound more Brazilian uh, to me. Oh, he know, sounds rather fantastic. than if I heard yeah. a German guitarist playing this, it <laughs> oh, would probably right? be quite different, you know. 
No, he has a natural feel for this, and that made me so happy because he's playing solo here. And these are basically compositions. They're arrangements, and he's learning the arrangement. He's not just playing it, you know, on the beach, you know, for his, mm. you know, picking it out for his friends. So he, he's worked on these, but still, it sounds so natural. I just love it. Um, anyway, this first one, it's a gorgeous track with the melody coming out vibrantly in its melody and rhythm. It's kind of jazzy. Oh, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit, um, full of virtuosity and contrapuntal voices as well as the tricky rhythm, uh, very appealing, tricky for us. I don't know. Maybe, uh, it's, it's natural for Brazil anyway, and great sound quality on this album too. The guitar is recorded very close up. You hear every detail and he doesn't get a lot of finger noise, which was pretty remarkable to me. So it's a, it's a really immaculate technique. Track two, Antonio Carlos Yobim, the girl from. Ipanema, everybody knows this song, right? This is internationally famous. This arrangement is also by Sergio Assad. Um, this is an excitingly involved opening here, and uh, how beautifully Fernandez lays down this famous melody. Wow. It's a bit faster than in the famous Astrid Gilberto vocal version that we always think about when we hear this song. <laughs> um, and it's immensely appealing. I like this a lot. It's uh, It really registers the, the melody, the rhythm. It all registers so well. There are little ad-libs that Fernandez inserts, and they all raise a smile, at least for me. Or maybe that's Assad's arranging. Anyway, gorgeous um, interpretation of this. Next, Eduardo Lobo and Chico Buarque, a piece called uh, Beatriz. And this is arranged by Assad as well. Um, Eduardo Lobo is a bossa nova composer and guitarist, and he's still with us today, born in 1943. This is one of his most famous songs. Um, it's a slower, more romantic tune than the previous two we've heard with some beautiful harmony in it, played with genuine feeling by Fernandez. So he does uh, ballads well, too. Um, I like his pulling back on the dynamics to squeeze out an extra bit of emotion at certain points. A very pretty arrangement, too. So for Assad as well. Next, we actually get an actual piece by Sergio Assad. His Aquarelle number two, Valseana, or second movement of his Aquarelle called Valsayana. Um, he was born in 1952, by the way. Uh, he's a guitarist and composer, is Assad, and this work has a bit more of a classical feel to it. It's slow and song-like and very touching and touchingly played here, very sensitive tone. Gorgeous harmonies that ring out clearly on this fantastic performance and recording. Track five, Ari Barroso, Aquarela do Brasil. Um, this is arranged by Sergio Assad. Um, Barroso, 1903 to 1964 were his uh, dates. He was a pianist, composer, soccer commentator, and talent show host. Mm. <laughs> he could have just written this one song and been happy. Uh, he composed many songs for Carmen Miranda during oh. his career. And mm. this song was... Um, in the 1942 animated Disney film Saludos Amigos, which was made during World War II, uh, when uh, Disney was trying to get more of an audience in um, South America, they were trying to expand their mm -hmm. audience down there. So they had these uh, Latin themes, and this particular movie had uh, Donald Duck in it as a really obnoxious tourist, American <laughs> tourist. Uh, Goofy appears in it, and Jose Carioca, the Brazilian cigar-smoking parrot, if anybody remembers him. <laughs> um, you can look him up if you like. Um, this is one of the most recorded songs of all time. It was in that movie, and I guess it just went ballistic from there. Um, this piece, interestingly, has a sort of muted strumming effect between each of the lines in the verse at the beginning. 
Um, by 44 seconds, the track starts dancing in a syncopated Brazilian rhythm and continues in that mode to the end. Beautifully rendered here. And great that he um, resurrected this work and put it here. I mean, not that it was forgotten, but I, I doubt it's played very often in this context. So thanks for, thank you to Fernandez for making it available to us as a solo guitar work like this. Really great. Anyway, we now get to uh, Hector Villa-Lobos, a very famous Brazilian classical composer. His Bachiana Brasileiras number 5. He did several of these. These are all works inspired by Bach. And uh, this one is the first movement of that particular uh, Bachiana, uh, the aria, Cantalena, it's Adagio. And this one features um, Sheku Kanemason on the cello. I guess they're all they're all friends because the Kana Mason family makes a bit of an appearance here. Um, this um, Bach-inspired piece is set for cello and piano originally, um, and um, Kana Mason, Sheku Kana Mason, plays along legato lines as the guitar plays arpeggiated chords in accompaniment. This is a composed instrumental piece in ternary form. The middle section features slowly descending lines, begins at around the second minute or slightly after. Um, Kane Mason plays the adagio with great feeling. The end of his lines, weeping. He gets a really nice kind of weeping kind of quality out of that, uh, out of his um, re resolutions. The opening repeats at around the fourth minute. This is a good partnership. I wouldn't mind hearing these two do a whole album together, actually. Track seven, Milton Nascimento, who many people may remember, and Fernando Brandt. Ponta da Area, and this is arranged by uh, Joao Luiz. Uh, a slow, it's a slow piece, song-like in its melody and accompaniment. The middle section, beginning just before the first minute, is more lively and features rather interesting lines that dip down and return in circular fashion in the bass. There's a lovely muted section played with the heel of the hand on the bridge just at the beginning of the second minute. Changes of section in this work are quick and unpredictable, lending the piece a kind of magic, really, because it just sounds like uh, the uh, musician is just pulling all these new ideas out of a out of a hat or something. It ends very suddenly on an interrupted melody, and there's a pause after that, and then a chord. Next, tracks eight through twelve are going to be an entire um, set of preludes by Hector Villalobos. His five preludes, W419. We hear all five of them. The first one, number one in E minor, has a melody accompanied by repeating chords. And by the way, this is Fernandez solo again. A melody accompanied by repeated chords in the accompaniment. This prelude is song-like and rather somber in feeling. There's a contrasting lively rhythm section, sounding much brighter and major in key, acting as the middle section. Fernandez is alive to every change of mood in the piece, and I'm very impressed by him in this as well. This is very, pretty long for Prelude. It's about 4 minutes and 57 seconds, and the opening repeats for the ending. Prelude 2 in E major. An amiable melody stretching upward, then coming to rest on its tonic note at the end. And lovely Brazilian-sounding chords. Fernandez's subtle slowing of the melody shows a musical maturity really beyond his years. He's very sensitive to the lines and how to draw emotion out of them. Uh, the opening repeats in this ternary form piece after the two-minute mark. Prelude number three is on the slow side, and this is an A minor. Uh, it makes its opening statement in chords. 
Uh, the guitarist roams freely on a melody after this opening and has the opportunity to wax poetic before he descends to chords that redefine the harmony. Number four in E minor starts with a monophonic theme, means only one note per time, no harmony, that ends in a repeating broken up chord. This one almost sounds like something from the southern USA and its twanginess. Just past the uh, first minute, there's a contrasting section of quickly strummed chords agilely moving around the neck of the guitar. The repeated monophonic theme is played as harmonics. Um, Fernandez gets a lot of sensitivity in his tone during these monophonic lines, and the piece ends on an unresolved chord, a very ponderous piece. The last prelude, number five, in D major, this is track 12, is mid-tempo with a light and airy rhythm. It sounds like something from the Latin past, perhaps a Baroque guitar work. Um, a new section comes in just before the one-minute mark with chords marking the first beat, while descending lines underline the 3-4 time signature. It's slower and more ponderous than the opening. The airy beginning comes back at around 2 minutes and 20 seconds, and this piece ends on a lovely quiet chord, followed by a flourish in the upper end. So that's sort of like, the, I guess, the jewel in the middle of the program. And now we go back to uh, popular music for the rest of the uh, album. Track 13, Angenor de Oliveira, O Mundo e Um Moinho, um, featuring Maria Rita on vocals. Now, this has the, uh, the booklet, by the way, has the words in Portuguese, but there's no translation into any <laughs> other language. Uh, thankfully, we now have Google Translate, so I just hovered my uh, phone over the, uh, or my iPod Touch, actually, over the uh, lyrics, and I got the basic meaning. And boy, are they cynical. Um, the, the, piece, the name of the piece is, um, <laughs> means um, the world is a mill, and... Uh, the lyrics go on to explain, and like a mill, it will crush your dreams. <laughs> so, <laughs> so everything is horrible. Wow. Anyway, I was pretty surprised by that. It is kind of a sad piece, though. It was written by um, Oliveira. Uh, he was known as uh, Cartola in in Portuguese, I guess, which means top hat. And he was a singer, composer, and poet. And considered to be a major figure in the development of samba, uh, which this isn't. <laughs> okay, this is a sad, <laughs> cynical song. Um, the vocal is recorded very closely, like the guitar, on the rest of the album, so that you can hear every shiver in the voice. The guitar accompaniment is minimal. It has arpeggiated chords. At a minute and 50 seconds, there's a break in the vocal, and the guitar gets a chance to roam around the chord pattern and melody. Uh, Fernandez plays here as though he's uh, the healing balm after the cynicism of the lyrics. He sounds really pretty, actually, in this. Yeah. The voice contrasts with his tone. It's got a rather stark sound, the voice. Uh, not warm, though perfectly idiomatic in this music. The song remains understated and quiet throughout. Okay, let's cheer up a bit. Track 14, Demetrio Ortiz and Zulema Demirkin. Recuerdos de Ipac... Caray. Okay, this is not a Brazilian work. Uh, Ortiz was Paraguayan, and Ipacaray, I hope I'm saying that close to correctly, is a town in Paraguay on Ipacaray Lake. Uh, this song is known worldwide. I don't think I know it, but anyway. It is, as the title suggests, contemplative of an obviously good memory. Fernandez plays it warmly and with affection. Lovely detail and pacing. It's really just a nice, soothing work. 
Um, next, Antonio Carlos Yobim, um, Samba do Aviao. And this is arranged by our good friend uh, Sergio Assad again. Starts with harmonics of, and light strumming with percussive effects made by banging on the guitar body with your hand rhythmically. This piece has a lot of quick changes of section and figuration, also of sound in Fernandez's interpretation. He alters his tone frequently in this piece. It's a lively, familiar sounding piece. Um, as throughout the album, Fernandez's lively sense of and sensitivity to rhythm pays great dividends as this solo piece really comes alive in his hands. Yeah, Yobim's music, we it's been played and sung by so many people that yeah. sometimes you don't know the name of the tune, but you, you've heard it before. You just know you've heard it. And th this is one of them, as is the, uh, the one that's coming up. But first, Violeta Parra, Gracias a la Vida, Thank You to Life. This is arranged by Emmanuel Sowix. Violeta Parra was Chilean, and this song was written in 1966 and popularized in the 1970s by Mercedes Sosa throughout Latin America, later in Brazil by Elis Regina, and in the U.S. by Joan Baez. Hmm. It's one of the most covered Latin songs in history. Um, it's rather sad and heartfelt. Uh, Fernandez uh, does well to ring out all the pathos via his tone and pacing. Um, he gets a rich ringing tone in this piece. Actually, this would have been nice to hear a vocal on too, but um, hmm. we just get the guitar arrangement here. Check 17, Antonio Carlos Jobim. Uh, Se todos fossem iguais a voce. And then this is a medley with Aguas de Marzo, which of course we all know. Uh, maybe if, if we, even if we don't know the title. And this is arranged by Jose, um, Sergio Assad again. It's a, the uh, first one, Se todos fossem iguais a voce. A voce. This is a slow, quiet tune. Um, the title, by the way, that title means if everyone was like you in Portuguese, but it was translated into English as uh, someone to light up my life. So if you, that song title mm. sounds familiar to you, you've heard it as that in English. Uh, the meld with Aguas de Marzo, which is, means Waters of March, is seamless and rather magical when you realize it's happened while you're hearing this famous and very appealing flowing theme. A shout out to the arranger Sergio Assad here. It's pretty brilliant as well as to Fernandez for his fantastic pacing. Throughout the album, he finds exactly the right tempo to put across each tune in its strongest light. This is really some great artistry, I thought, on this album, especially for such a young player. Um, Sergio Assad closes the uh, program with one of his works, Menino. And this one features uh, Braima Kane Mason, who's a violinist, uh, also from the Kane Mason family. Um... The violinist um, we're hearing supplies the melody. He's recorded rather close, though he plays quietly. And to be honest, uh, my ear is being drawn to the guitar. It's It phrases really beautifully here. And and I've been drawn to his playing throughout the album. I don't feel like um, Brahma Kana Mason is as compelling a player as his brother, Asheku Kana Mason. His or her, I don't know, Brahma. <laughs> you would... You know, Don't know whether this is uh, I, I'm not going to go there anyway um, my ear is drawn to the guitar so beautifully and besides um, Connor Mason's tone breaks up a bit at the top of the range he doesn't really have this like dominating solid sound um, he doesn't sound as idiomatic as Fernandez either with his melodic playing so I don't know I, I well I would have liked to hear well I'd like to hear Sheku Connor Mason and uh 
uh, Fernandez record a whole album together. I'm not too sure. <laughs> I'd like it if these two did a whole album. It's nice enough, though. I mean, Connie Mason is, is he's a fine violinist, but I wasn't really too compelled by this particular performance. Um, anyway, from um, Plinio Fernandez, this is fantastic playing. It's absolutely idiomatic, which is not always the case for classical players, um, although I think he's a bit of um, both classical and popular. The Vila Lobos works have rarely been played with such Brazilian sensitivity to the rhythm on guitar. And the album is a balance between carefree song-like themes and the more serious music of Vila Lobos and one or two kind of sadder songs as well. Uh, Fernandez is sensitive to nuances, both rhythmic and harmonic in both types of works and can play with a smile as well as with a furrow on the brow. Uh, he's in his element in this program. He's a rising star. And on the evidence of this, I think we're going to hear a lot more from him. Yeah, I enjoyed this. I mean, it has that authentic Brazilian interpretation of Brazilian music. Great guitar playing, a uh, nice guitar tone throughout, and the recording's really nice. As a program, though, it kind of deceived me a bit. It's off to a really rhythmic start, but then yeah. it kind of mellows out and uh, stays pretty mellow. Uh, so if you're in the mood for, you know, kind of some chilled guitar, although exquisitely played in details, this is pretty good. And yeah. I'd like to see him yeah, explore maybe less familiar Brazilian music and stay in that vein and uh, give us something new to listen to. There are a lot of the material here is familiar, yeah. uh, even to American and uh, other international ears, I think. But there's probably a lot of music. I, I often find when we do Latin kind of episodes, I you know come across these names of composers who are well known yeah. uh, in their countries in Brazil too that I don't know. And so there's probably a lot more that he could dig into and add his authentic interpretation to. So maybe we'll hear some more of that in the future. Yeah, this had to, a lot of um, you know arranging had to be done on this album. It would have been nice if he had had the program. I think he had to slow the program down for the Vila Lobos works. But then mm -hmm. after that, I think he could have brought it back up slowly. You know, that would have been a yeah. nice uh, trajectory too. Mm -hmm. um, I thought this ended kind of on a on, on pretty much the uh, the least appealing <laughs> performance on the album. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say piece, but I did you know. But there you go. It's very appealing though. I. Yeah. urge you to hear it. I liked it a lot. Nice collection. All right. And now the most intriguing record that I heard this week uh, is um, an album called Lost and Found by Sean Shebe, um, British guitarist who here is playing the electric guitar throughout this album. It's an electric guitar album. And this is on the Pentatone label. Um, this album is described as a journey that, revel that revels in eclecticism. Shibe's image of it is of an overflowing toy box, an emporium of curiosities, he says. Um, it's child's play on the surface, but as with so many childhood things, it portends something darker and ecstatic, particularly when rendered through the postmodern chaos of the electric guitar. That's what he says. I didn't really feel there's too much chaos on this record. Um, we'll get to that, though. Mm. Um, there's no real connection between the works. But the booklet note says the music is by outsiders, mystics, visionaries who often have more than one identity and lay claim to various artistic traditions, genres, or audiences. Yeah, I could see that. These these guys are all outsiders. There isn't really anyone who isn't on this album, except for maybe Chick Corea. But 
I guess he had a foot in the classical world too, being a pianist, you know, cause he, these are, uh, we hear from him composed pieces, although they're not as composed as a classical work would be. Anyway, on the, uh, the first thing that will strike you is the uh, album cover in which uh, Sean Shebe looks rather androgynous and one mm. could say um, David Bowie-like on the album cover. He's, um, his face is all made up with lipstick and garish colors and uh, he's uh, wearing what looks like material for a wedding dress. Um, it's really lazy. In the notes, he mentions the androgynous characters of William Blake's personal mythos. So Shebe may be posing as one of those characters on the cover. It doesn't really explicitly say. In fact, the title of the album, Lost and Found, borrows its title from poems in William Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience. The music on the album is said to be a kind that makes time's drifting, cumulative movement especially felt. And I think I can agree with that, actually. Um, it's a really compelling album. The booklet notes go on to describe each individual piece, and all the descriptions are very literary, which is uh, rare for a classical CD. So if you actually buy the CD, you're going to want to take some time to read the booklet note. They're pretty interesting uh, descriptions. I couldn't really you know, read them here. <laughs> they were very yeah. long and rather uh, effete, but they were <laughs> interesting to read. I really did enjoy them. Anyway, the uh, CD also, I'll show you this, Russ. I didn't show you this. Um, the CD comes with a mini mini Polaroid photo of Shibe wearing glasses in the studio control room playing a uh, cream Stratocaster. Where is it? Here it is. There you go. <laughs> it just, I don't know. It's a, <laughs> That's funny. It's like an image. I don't, it might be. I don't think it's a real Polaroid. It might be. Who knows? It's very small, though. It's not as big as yeah. a, the ones we remember. But I remember this kind of glossy surface yeah, yeah. and stuff. Um, so he's got he's playing a cream-colored Stratocaster with a white pick guard. All right. So this this very interesting, and I'm going to encourage people to really listen to this. It's really hard to give an impression of what it sounds like. Uh, it doesn't sound like anything like I expected it to sound like. Um, so I was um, pretty enthralled throughout the whole thing. And the first piece is uh, Hildegard of Bingen, who lived, um, she's one of the oldest um, of uh, composers whose names we know. Um, I think she was born in the year 1098. She lived in the medieval era anyway. And this piece is called O Viridissima Virga, and it's arranged by Sean Shibe. Um, Hildegard of Bingen wrote vocal works, basically, and this is um, an arrangement for guitar. Her melismatic lines are very melismatic. A melisma is um, singing a single vowel but varying the note, and her lines are heavily melismatic. Oh, and that would that would just go on like forever before you get to the next word. Her melismatic lines extend far past the more limited boundaries of the Gregorian chant that was common at the time. And for that reason, it's a perfect depiction of spiritual ecstasy. You've just gone beyond the bounds of what's expected um, in the medieval period. I mean, for, and it still sounds pretty ecstatic to us today, although we're far more jaded than those people would have been <laughs> if they were jaded at all. The sound on the recording from the guitar is highly manipulated. This was another surprise. I thought I was just going to hear an electric guitar. But there's a lot of studio work going on on this album. Um, well, we hear most... Yeah? I think it's he's using a lot of synth effects. Uh, yeah. Especially on this one. Uh, a lot of these tracks, you know, you, you would have to listen carefully to 
differentiate between the that it's a guitar and not a, a keyboard um, well i'm guessing reason. that it's all a guitar but he may be yeah you remember those synclaviers back in the 80s he may be like putting the manipulating the sound and putting it through some keyboard or something um yeah there's know. a lot you can do with effects but i'll talk more about that at the end because that was sort okay. of what i got of the whole recording most of all yeah okay i'm interested to hear that actually we hear on this track mostly sustain and little attack on the strings, given the, giving the sound of vocal quality. It does not have a guitar quality, because you'd normally hear that attack on the strings. Um, there's also a droning bass note, uh, apparently recorded on a separate track. I can't imagine he's playing that as he's playing. The halo created around the harmonics produced give this captivating interpretation a spiritual glow. It's an interesting experiment. Um, to be honest, though, I prefer vocal versions of this, which come across as more ecstatic. This kind of this doesn't come across as ecstatic to me somehow. I think it's because of the the pace. It's sung. It's uh, played a little more slowly, and um, it has kind of more of a solemn character, which I don't really associate with Hildegard's music. Her music always feels like it's bursting the bounds of its time, like it's completely free. Um, the piece moves rather slowly in this performance. Um, vocal versions get through the line faster, probably because uh, the singers have to breathe <laughs> at some point, and they want to make sure they get there. And I think the slow pace takes something away from the work's ecstatic character, though I imagine Shibe needed the work to go at this pace due to the way he's creating the sound. Um, the gorgeous melody comes through, though. Track two is uh, Chick Corea, and we're going to hear a few of these um, pieces on this album. Um, his... Um, children's songs he uh, wrote a a set of um works called children's song one two three four etc for piano and they're not really um notated like classical works there's a lot of information missing and he gives very vague notes on how to play them <laughs> i think he just wants you to use your imagination and play like you're a child anyway this one is uh, a these are all arranged for by forbes henderson for acoustic guitar but we're hearing it on an electric guitar here the children's songs were all, of course, originally for piano. Korea's notation for this didn't have strict rules, and he encouraged performers to be free and playful like children in interpreting them. Hmm. Uh, this one has a rather naive skipping quality to it. An ostinato baseline creates a happy-go-lucky rhythm, as some more meditative and occasionally dark lines are played more slowly in the right hand. Uh, this works well in this performance. The guitar sounds double-tracked, maybe triple and quadruple-tracked. Who knows? Track three is by uh, Daniel Kidane. He was born in 1986, and it's called Continuance. And uh, he wrote this piece as a response to the lockdowns of uh, the last few years. It, this has a clean, vibrato-less, ringing bell tone to the guitar in this one. Um, the sound actually reminded me of... Um, you remember those... Um, uh, New Age uh, Wyndham Hill records. I, I don't know if he was yeah, on Wyndham yeah. Hill, but Andreas here, yeah. Andreas Fallenweider, remember him? He was like an electric <laughs> harpist. The set, this, the sound on the guitar kind of approximates his sounds, I think. It reminded me a little bit of that. Um, it sounds uh, manipulated in the top end, the sound, uh, to get those ringing tones to sustain for so long. That was what I remember about Fallenweider's music. The piece was apparently written for Shibet, so I'm wondering how live all of this is. Um, it sounds like two guitars are involved, so double tracking. Um, I should mention, so far, this is a pretty quiet, meditative album. Um, this piece is also brief at two minutes and five seconds. 
Then we get Chikoria, children's song number four, arranged by Forbes Henderson again. Uh, distortion is added for this piece. A more menacing, quietly growling ostinato bass is employed. As the rough upper voice plays a more aggressive melody. There's nothing naive about this work. Then we get to a composer by the name of uh, Lewis Thomas Hardin, who went by the name of Moondog. And uh, we get three pieces by him. He's a pretty interesting character himself. He was an inventor of musical instruments, a composer. So, so I'm thinking Harry Parch right away, that type of character. He was also an urban mystic who had an altar dedicated to the Norse god Thor in his country home. <laughs> Uh, there's a photo of Moondog in the booklet in which he's on East 51st Street in New York wearing a Viking cloak and horned helmet and holding a short sword. And he's got a Russian-style Orthodox priest's beard. So he looks like a pretty odd guy. He's known <laughs> for his use of counterpoint. He is now deceased. He lived from 1916 to 1999. This is a, practically a hard rock distorted guitar sound at the beginning. It mm -hmm. suddenly gets quieter, then crescendos and explodes into rock distortion chords. A wailing solo line emerges at 35 seconds. Uh, some pretty impressive sounding high harmonics are heard at about the 55 second mark. And the ending bass chord sounds really cool. But we quiet down after that. Another work by Moondog, Pastoral 2. This has kind of an early electronic video game quality to the sound. If you remember, well... Like some of what those like those um, computer games um, mm. sounded like. The solo line is an undistorted guitar line with some kind of effect on it. The piece sounds kind of outer spacey to me, um, due to the effects on the guitar. It's rather soothing and pretty, and kind of new agey. Uh, track seven uh, again by Moondog, high on a rocky ledge. This has a cleaner, more natural guitar sound. Um, it features scraped chords at the beginning. Like Pastoral 2, it's also very pretty with its circular ascending and descending twinkling melody. I enjoyed all three of these Moondog pieces a lot. Um, they're very simple in their structure and have appealing melodies and they're memorable. And uh, I like the sounds employed as well. Back to Chick Corea, Children's Song 2, arranged by Forbes Henderson. This has a more tender sound and a bit more of uh, the simplicity of childhood in it. There's a slight distortion in the lower chords. The music suddenly gets a bit more emphatic with the chords at 35 seconds, and there are some disturbing harmonies in the chords up until a minute and four seconds, where the gentle rocking rhythm comes back for the end of the piece. All right, we get into some more uh, like lengthier pieces here. This one by Oliver Leith, who was born in mm. 1990, is called Pushing My Thumb Through a Plate. <laughs> this was my least favorite it was my least favorite to too. To track. Yeah. I, it was my least favorite too. Although I didn't hate it. Okay, I just uh, well, we'll get to that. This was originally for solo harp, if you can believe it. Uh, the chords and pitches uh, bleed and twist, and this effect is achieved by turning the tuning mm -hmm. pegs while you're playing. That's basically how this effect is, and it's just the same chord being strummed again and again for nine minutes. So it's kind of hypnotic, which is something that. It kind of puts me off music, to be honest. I don't really like it when it's hypnotic. Um, there's a manipulated uh, tremolo effect on the sound. It sounds like it's underwater. The turning of the tuning pegs is discernible from around 25 seconds. And basically, the same chord is repeated with different wavering sustained sounds 
produced by twisting the tuning pegs throughout. There's also some kind of keyboard sounding effect in the high end, but I imagine it's produced by the guitar and manipulated to sound and tackless in the studio. I'm not sure. It actually sounds pretty synthy to me, as no other instrument or performer is mentioned in the booklet notes. Uh, this is the longest work on the album at 10 minutes and 44 seconds, and mm. that's rather unfortunate because it's also, <laughs> to me, the least appealing. It just really didn't do anything. I, no. I feel like it didn't need to be here. It doesn't really – I mean, you don't find yourself saying make it stop or anything, but um, if, I felt like I, if I hadn't heard it, my life mm. wouldn't have uh, – would still be the same. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, at the end, the final chord fades. Next, a composer that I really love, uh, Meredith Monk. I find her very creative. This is a piece called Nightfall, and it's arranged by Sean Shebe. Uh, Monk is um, very famous. She's a, she lives in New York, and she's been there for a long, long time. She's still around too. Um, she um, is famous for um, what they what she calls extended vocal techniques and. Most, if not all, not all, yeah, some of it isn't. Most of her music is for voices, and this particular piece was originally for 12 voices. It sounds like it would have been really beautiful for 12 voices. Not all of her um, music is beautiful. In fact, in my uh, novel, Extreme Music, there's a piece that uh, Alberto Narcisi, the conductor, the composer in the book, uh, wrote called Laughing or Laughter, and uh, it's just the uh, the soloist laughing, the soprano laughing, and... Um, the uh, narrator says he wondered why no one had thought of that before. Well, it turns out that Meredith Monk did think of it before, <laughs> and I knew the piece. I had just forgotten that she had done it. Mm. Um, it's on her uh, album uh, Dolman Music, and I can't remember the name of it, but I will look it up later. Um, but it's a, it's basically she's not laughing through the piece, but she's talking and then doing this crazy, insane laugh, and it made a mm. big impression on me apparently because my subconscious mind <laughs> remembered it. <laughs> anyway. This piece is much more gentle than that. It's called Nightfall, and it evokes sunset, as the title suggests. Um, it starts quietly. If these were voices, I think they'd be filing into the auditorium, um, but it starts quietly in crescendos. The harmony is warm and appealing. Um, it comes in at about the 48-second mark. Uh, this is an electric guitar we're hearing, but it doesn't sound like one. There's some filtering going on, and it sounds a bit like a Fender Rhodes, really, although there's an audible attack on the strings. The work is soothing and pretty, and the work progresses as a very long crescendo with a repeating bass line and some appealing harmonies and simple overlapping patterns. At 4 minutes and 35 seconds, a distinct dotted rhythm comes out in one of the lines. The equally long decrescendo becomes obvious in the 6th minute, so the piece makes a dynamic arch, reaching peak loudness in the middle. Okay, at the end, in the original piece, there was a long, unvoiced exhalation. So all of the singers, I guess, just go, and that's how the piece ends. Shiba had to find a way to uh, sort of... Um, duplicate that or come up with a, an equivalent. So he um, brushed the strings with the flesh of his right hand fingers. I guess he just, you know, mm. with the meaty part, just moved um, his hand on the string. So that's the sound you're hearing at the end of this track. Next we get Bill Evans, Peace, Peace, a very famous work, which is, um, um, it's pretty simple, really. The bass pattern just keeps repeating and the higher melody improvises over it. This particular performance features a prominent droning bass note with long sustained notes in the melody. 
Um, there's a slight vibrato effect on the guitar in the higher end melody. Shibet plays this very slowly, almost languorously, luxuriating in the various tones he's producing and letting them ring. Very different than the Bill Evans version or really any other version we've heard of this piece by a jazz pianist. Track 12, Olivier Messian, O Sacrum Convivium. This was originally a motet for voices. Um, it's got some really odd harmonies in it, but it's a very quiet piece nonetheless. It starts with a tender attack on the strings, very quiet. If you're listening closely, you'll pick up the odd harmonies. I think the tone of the electric guitar, which is gentle and wavering, um, maybe it's a vibrato pedal, I'm not sure, softens the harmony a bit, and the piece remains quiet throughout. Okay. Next piece, Shiva Fesharecki, uh, who was born in 1987, and this piece is called Venus slash Zore, and these are all capital letters. This is arranged by Fesharecki herself and Sean Shibe. She's um, British-Iranian. The piece um, here intertwines ideas of science and spirituality, according to her. Uh, the title represents first Venus the planet, so the scientific element, with the International Envision Project. We'll investigate it in 2029, the year 2029. And Zore is the name of the composer's mother, which means Venus in Persian. The piece is a single large crescendo. It starts quietly with sustaining atmospheric tones. The opening is very slowly arpeggiated chords, and the pattern slowly speeds up and new notes are added. So the pattern is slowly expanding and vibrating more quickly. By the three minutes and 50 second mark, the pattern is almost being strummed. And by the end, it is being strummed. And that's how it ends. Track 14, we get the bookend Hildegard von Bingen again. O Koroskans Lux Stellarum, arranged by Sean Shibe. Um, this um, sets the program off. This is like a bookend piece, but there's another piece that comes after this. Um, it sounds like there are electronic keyboard effects in the high end on this one, but it must be manip it could be a manipulated guitar. Meanwhile, in the low end, there's a rapidly repeating pattern, sort of like early Philip Glass. It's a very spacey interpretation of Hildegard's music. And we end the program with Julius Eastman's work, Buddha. Eastman lived in 1940 to 1990. And his music drew on pop conventions and the free and aleatory procedures of the avant-garde. And this sounds like a pretty avant-garde piece, really. His work was political and foregrounded black and gay experience, which this piece doesn't. Okay. He died in obscurity in New York in 1990, despite working with people like Meredith Monk and Pierre Boulez. No public notice of his death was given for eight months, which followed periods of homelessness and drug addiction. So he came to a really sad end. Hmm. His scores were impounded by the, by the city, and Buddha was written for unspecified instrumentation. The score offers no clues as to the duration of harmony. And there's a picture of the score in the CD booklet, and the, it's on note on uh, music paper, and it shows an egg-shaped closed space with notation inside it. So how you play hmm. this, I really don't know. But here's how Shibe plays it. The beginning is in the low end, and gets a sound like the Tibetan monks chanting, Om! in their throaty low voices, if you've ever heard that. It, the guitar sound sort of approximates that. It's pretty interesting. There are droning electronic sounds into the first minute. By the second minute, we're hearing loud, harsh, siren-like sounds in the middle to high range, 
with odd harmonics hanging above. You know, up to this point, this is an album you could have fallen asleep to, but this is just going to wake you right up <laughs> if, if that happens. Um, the harmony clashes dissonantly. The volume lets up by the third minute, and we're hearing less harsh droning sounds in the mid-range. There's actually a rather magical moment at about the four-minute mark when the chanting bass comes back in for a few more ohms. Uh, the piece ends suddenly, as does the album. So don't be fooled by the use of electric guitar. This is a highly atmospheric album, and an appealing and rewarding one, too. It's rather surprising to me how drawn into it I was. Um, I generally think of the guitar as either an aggressive, the electric guitar, as either an aggressive distorted instrument in rock, or having that dirty jazz tone that, that it often gets. But here, it gets a variety of sounds, um, some of them even new agey. There's a few, there are a few pieces here that are minor challenges to the ear, like the, the, leith, the leith piece that we both didn't like. <laughs> but most of it is atmospheric, even spacey, and rather soothing, like the Monk and Evans pieces. It's rather a pleasant, unique surprise and one to savor. We don't get too many programs like this that are both adventurous and successful. Uh, this has a bit of magic to it, too, and that's entirely because of the guitar's talent and ability to communicate musically. This program is unique to him, and that's what really makes it special, I think. I'd say listen with an open mind, and you may find yourself beguiled. I certainly did. I've, I'm kind of addicted to this now. I've been listening to it a few times <laughs> over the week. Maybe I have a unique personal take on this. So, I mean, overall, the collection of material is largely placid with a few mm. more intense pieces. But I see this as kind of a study of tone possibilities. And he's not using you know, any really uh, impressive technique or showing off mm. um, his uh, pyrotechnics here at all. And I think he got into the studio, used to the studio. He was really well, excited I, I don't, about that. I think he's doing most of this with just pedals and uh, mm. you know loop things and whatnot. But for me, I play guitar, and I'm mainly an acoustic guitarist, right? Yeah. And, and I started on a six-string guitar, dreadnought, playing various styles of music, and I have some uh, nylon string guitar mm. uh, and I like that and to me that's the focal point of guitar for me is the resonance in the body but right. now I also have a I have like a hybrid guitar that I use to play with the band mm. and uh, you can play acoustic on it but it, it also has uh, electric pickup and you know depending on what I'm playing I can expand my you know expressive possibilities right. but I I was always wary of getting into you know the whole effect world because right. it was different from what I was into but I I got a few effect pedals and you know some some specific ones and there's multi ones and it's a whole like universe of things and <laughs> if you keep buying them pretty soon you have yeah. one of those little Tyco train sets going around your feet <laughs> but what always been my focal point with it was trying to find the right tone you know for the whatever song or piece i'm going to play and you know often i can hear it in my head what i want it to sound like and then i have to search and adjust and try to get you know just that right sound and mm. once in a while you also just find a sound when you're looking for something else and then you get some new ideas of how that could be used uh, and expand your musical kind of expressions. And I really think that's what he's doing here. I mean, we know him so far mostly as a classical 
acoustic guitarist, although we, he right. has done electric things in the past. He did but that it, uh, Steve Reich piece, the counterpoint right. one. Yeah, But this is quite different. And electric so counterpoint. The, I, I really could feel like I was joining in on his sort of journeying through, you know, all these different tonal possibilities, uh, mixing in, like there's that kind of rocky edge distorted tone he uses. He's got some cleaner tones where it's more obviously guitar, but then there's the real synthy type pieces where it could be a keyboard or a guitar. You're just not sure because it's using different kinds of attacks and the tone is so disguised. And that's what kind of makes it interesting to me. It's sort of a tonal exploration and uh, largely I think successful because he's, you know, drawing on all these unrelated kinds of musical uh, elements and making them his own and experimenting with all these different tone colors and possibilities. So it's, yeah, experimental. It's kind of daring, I think. It'll probably alienate a lot of people, but, uh, yeah, you know. I thought it would alienate me, but it didn't. You know, I was really surprised at how much I liked it, really. I, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to guitar players, but uh, maybe, you know, people who are expecting... <laughs> <laughs> well, well yeah, it subverted my surprised. expectations. I think that's why, but yeah. it didn't do it in a way that put me off. So that's that's why I think people should give it a listen. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. All right, we had some good jazz recordings too. More yeah, guitar. Yeah, lots of uh, jazz guitar. Here we're going to go, well, we're going to do the opposite I usually do. We're going to start with a famous one, and then we'll go to some uh, newer players, at least for uh, us. Uh, mm -hmm. But they're all really good, and they've got yeah. uh, some unique qualities of their own. So they do. we're going to start with uh, Julian Lage, a mm. guitarist who has gotten a lot of fame for himself and rightfully so. Now we did his recording in 2021, Squint, and that was back in our episode 19 when we were still doing those really weird titles, Squinting at Angels in the Shadows. Oh, <laughs> you wow. can check that uh, what, uh, discussion What were you doing? Oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, his, his new one, also on Blue Note, View with a room. Yeah. Switched around from how we usually hear it. But uh, he's got a really interesting concept going on here uh, on his usual electric guitar. Joining him, David King on drums, Jorge Roder on bass guitar, acoustic bass. And he's joined by the great Bill Frizzell yeah. on electric guitar. And I was wondering, how are these two very different uh, artists going to uh, come together? And uh, it's a really interesting result. Now, yeah. Lodge is able to do a lot of different things. You can see him. There's a great video of him playing with uh, Martin Taylor. And I forget what tune they're doing. But, you know, just standard jazz uh, kind of bebop style. He can do all that stuff. But his kind of unique style in last year's album, too, he's not you know, completely in the jazz idiom. Uh, I think he draws in a lot more like country influences, rock style, and he's really loose and fluid player in his style. And that really comes out in this recording, uh, I think. And actually, this is all original compositions on here. His tunes and approach is very airy, uh, lots of freedom, and the way he mixes melodies and solo playing, these are really hard to put into words. So I'm just going to do yeah. my best and give you my impressions here. It starts out with a tune tributary. And this one fades in with some synthy sounds provided by Frizzell, who's really good at 
sneaking in these kind of synthy lines himself after what we've just discussed. Also a few overtones. Uh, there's slides, arpeggios, and pearly tones in a rubato kind of fashion that make an intro. At around 40 seconds in, a slow tempo forms with a bass pulse, light drum click work, and we get delicate interplay between Lodge in the left channel and Frizzell on the right. And this sort of sets the stage for what we're going to hear uh, going through on the melodies. Uh, the melody here is sparse. It's got a lot of upward slides and little trilly figures. It gives it a bit of a country image, I felt. Uh, Lodge's sound is thick and Frisell is lighter. Uh, however, Frisell is going to put his stamp over this recording like he always does. Yeah, it's almost like you can't not yeah, listen to him. He's got something, man. I don't know what it is. I think it's his use of space. Uh, I'm not sure, but he adds subtle rhythmic fills and figures. They're often muted uh, and an overtone here and there, but he never gets in Lange's way here yeah. or anywhere on the album. And it sounds like he's purposely trying to play <laughs> in the shadow a little bit, um, yeah. you know, but it's never really blessed, intriguing. Though. You're always aware he's there. Yeah. It's something about his, uh, yeah. Yeah. Midway through this tune, they have a little dance with each other of rhythmic muted tones. Uh, that's really nice. And then Frisell adds some more light synthy ideas too, but they aren't outstanding, uh, you know, overpowering anything else. The tempo breaks down into some low slides by Lage returning to the original melody intro uh, into a soft ending. It's very lovely, subtle playing here. It's free flowing, uh, lots of lush and delicate sounds, uh, a really nice mix. Track two is word for word. Frisell sits out on this one. I thought this has kind of a 50s rock feeling to the pulse and melody, but there's a lot going on. Um, mm. it, King has this light but super busy drummy going on from the start. It's really contrasting to the way Lodge starts out with these slow loping phrases. It hangs really loosely together, but then Lodge gains steam uh, going through the melody. There's a cute little pause at 40 seconds, and then things get progressively busier with Rotor's bass. Lodge's line's getting more animated to match the kind of triplet subdivided feel that's coming up in the drums. Lodge's solo's on with dizzying notes, uh, runs, pearly double stops, bluesy ideas, chords. There's a little bit of everything in all yeah, the solos. Yeah, pretty amazing. He's yeah. doing everything. At, just before three minutes, they all uh, seem to get a hit of Ridlin or something, and suddenly things squeeze <laughs> back in to this loping rhythm uh, for a final round of a much more synced melody and an interesting final unresolved ringing guitar chord. So it's an exciting little ride you feel might go off the tracks at some points, but it doesn't. It's all loosely uh, hung together. That, that's what you want to feel, too. Yeah. It's, it, might, it might all yeah. <laughs> go yeah. go wrong, but yeah, no, it does. It's really it, exciting. Yeah. Track three is Auditorium. Uh, this one's a blindingly fast rhythmic intro line from Lodge to get it started. Uh, it has a kind of medium tempo, light rock beat with uh, drum brushes. The melody's sparse and airy, with lots of slides from Lodge and rhythmic interplay, and counterlines from Frizzell. It works up to a sudden climax of hammered notes uh, from Lodge at about one minute, then it chills back down with fluid lines. Rotor has great bass beats chugging underneath it. Then Lodge solos on uh, with too many techniques again to really describe. <laughs> he really does everything. Works up to that same 
kind of climax note again, but this time it's a little more staccato and muted. And then Frisell sprinkles in lightly all around uh, Lage. It must be really hard, like chasing a butterfly to uh, sort of counter him. Uh, there's mm. another climax part. And then from about four minutes and five seconds, they take it out with softly muted lines and to another unresolved uh, last note. It doesn't get to the uh, tonic again. Track four is Hard as a Drum. And Frisell sits out on this one as well. This one begins with choppy uh, fingered chords, like, you know, plucked, stopped with all the fingers yeah. from Lodge into a kind of free feel with little licks of guitar intervals before picking up a steady push. Uh, King has light and busy drumming going on underneath. They go around the same pattern once again. And then Lodge is off on a free flight solo here. Really nice interaction with rotor space. Uh, they turn... Back to the melody once more in a muted way, uh, pushing it up to the end. Track five is Echo. This one starts out with a very cool upward exploding bass riff. Uh, it's really unique. And that continues on like an ostinato bass pattern uh, as a slow beat forms around it and the guitar notes ring out, bringing on a mysterious atmosphere. Lodge picks out a dreamy, melancholy melody and Frisell adds rich atmospheres and tremolo tones. The melody turns bright just for a few spots in its uh, movement. Things settle for the bass line to stand out a bit, and then Lodge returns for some solo lines that meander down low, then they work their way eventually up high to a climax. It flows on to a chilled ending of guitar tone fog over that ghostly uh, bass sound. Uh, very unique. Track six, Chavez. It's got a busy, rocky drum beat to start. Lodge begins with some rhythmic figures that work into an uplifting melody theme. It gets syncopated, and Frisell adds skillful slotting in of ideas. And then Lodge has a fun little double-stop festival in the middle of these rising lines and some really cool um, running triplet lines, too. It takes a break to reset about two minutes and 50 seconds into the melody again. Frisell works light counter lines. And the last time through, they keep it light and rhythmic, closing over a, a neat little descending bass line. Track seven is Temple Steps. Lodge gets this one going with a unique alternating chord and uh, bass line uh, riff, bass on the guitar, that is. And Frisell adds a tremolo tone on baritone guitar here, uh, which is a kind of a guitar with a longer scale length, usually a larger body too, um, bigger bracing, and you can tune it lower, uh, and it really stands out here. Uh, he's got this cool low string echoing riff uh, that answers Lodge's playing. It forms into a cool little bluesy tune with a familiar chord progression that hooks you in. Uh, King doesn't have to add a lot on drums because the bass has tight pulses going. And Lodge takes a bluesy solo. He has fun with pitches and uh, varied articulation. And he seems to be like squeezing the phrases out, almost like, you know, squeezing, uh, you know, ketchup or something, uh, the way that they ooze out. Uh, Frisell fills out the sound with ringing tremolo notes. And you take it back through the fun melody again. And Rotor has some light bass fun under the softening chords as it fades out. Track eight is Castle Park, and just the trio again here. A lightly swinging minor theme with Lodge making a soft chord melody in these interesting 12-beat phrases that gives this feel of constantly pushing ahead. It's like always going for that next phrase. Uh, he turns to 
more solo lines but still adds interesting counter lines and chords and rotor has a syncopated chug that keeps the groove in check uh, king gets to mix things up a bit but sinks in with hits on key accents uh, another solo from Lodge with just about every technique you can imagine uh, but hmm. some cool triplet lines and then getting down low on the strings uh, stuck out as something different on this tune and that comes before return to the theme uh, this time with different articulations and muted notes track nine is let every room sing and this was maybe the freest tune uh, on the album but it does have some unifying elements Lodge plays ringing or rising intervals from a soft bass note in lines to get it started and that kind of comes back uh, throughout the song soft notes ring in guitars and bass but it's a cloud of sound with no tempo the rising riff returns there's a lot of compelling interplay between Lodge and Fussell in a free rhythmic space rotor pulses away on bass and King mixes things up on drums but it's not to a uh, tempo it gets a bit chaotic but the familiar riff returns at around three minutes and 45 seconds and then right at four minutes a pearly ringing melody line emerges unifying Lodge and Frizzell uh, they sync up and they take it to the ending so it's sort of order that comes out of the chaos and we end up with Fairbanks it's a medium fast flowing groove with catchy muted strums from Lodge and matching notes from Frizzell it's got a 16 bar intro over rhythmic bass and a clicky drum groove then Lodge takes the melody and Frisell more of a rhythm guitar part but they come back together on the, the strumming section again Lodge gets a very joyful sounding carefree solo here and Frisell adds sparse little tags and answers with ringing notes Lodge has some really wonderful disappearing soft trill ideas uh, at the end of his solo before getting back to the melody again and there's a little hold at about three minutes and ten seconds and some rhythmic licks that transition back into the muted strum idea from the intro to a soft ending so Lodge is one of the most interesting and creative young guitarists out there it's hard to contain him in a structure or context because he's just bursting with ideas and fluid techniques so King and Rotor are good partners, I think, here because they can hang loose and add more textures than rock steady rhythms when that's called for, and it is quite a bit. Uh, the music breathes and flows in every tune is a real discovery. Um, seems like if they played the same song again, every take would be really different. And you add to that the unique atmosphere that Bill Frizzell brings to any recording, and you get a very interesting combination. Uh, he always draws your ear into the tunes that he's on, but he's softer relative to Lodge. He's complementing what Lodge is doing and constantly adapting. So that interplay is a large part of the enjoyment of this recording too. Uh, overall, it's an uplifting listen, bubbling with good vibes and fluid music. Yeah, it's fairly quiet too. It really left the lasting impression on me. And I think after listening to you talk about it, I have an idea about why. It's probably because I'm trying to decipher all the things that Lodge is doing in each yeah. one of the tracks. He's really... Yeah. He's really inventive and has a lot of different, mm. like, so he'll play in a lot of different styles that he can switch between. I kept thinking about this album after I've heard it, and uh, I've heard it several times this week. Mm. I, I thought it was mostly laid back, except for Chavez, that track, which is lively and joyful. Um, yeah, it was it was good for late at night, I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah, you think? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta have, this is one you want to have your eyes closed when you listen to, for sure. Yeah. I'd say um, it relies as much as on tone quality as playing the themes and soloing, and Frizzell tends to do that anyway. Mm. Um, I think that's why he's there, because he kind of provides that. He's an atmospheric player, and he, uh, yeah, he he provides atmosphere via vibrato and sustained tones. Um, he doesn't dominate the album, but you're always aware when yeah. he's playing. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, this is, this might be one of my favorite albums of the year. I don't know but I got to hear it a few more times, but I'm certainly listening to it often. So, yeah. Yeah. I say. Lodge seems like a really nice and friendly guy. I've seen a number of interviews with him and he always just seems to be in a really good mood and uh, happy to talk talk to to people. Uh, Yeah, it'd be nice to talk to him. (laughs) I I mean, if I could play this well, I'd be happy probably too. But uh, (laughs) it's a really, uh, really nice recording. Yeah. All right. A guitarist that's new to me and I was drawn in because it's uh, organ quartet. So yeah, of course. sign me up. And this sign is me up too. Jim Witzel on his uh, new recording, Feeling It. And this is on Joplin and Sweeney Music label. Now, Witzel's a veteran jazz guitarist. He's played with John Patitucci, Ernie Watts, John Abercrombie, and many others around the LA and San Francisco area. And this is his second album as a leader, but it comes. Uh, 20 years after his first album. So (laughs) it's a big gap. Uh, His style's kind of based in hard bop, but he has a soft tone similar to John, or Jim Hall rather, maybe a little bit of Pat Metheny. He counts those two as his big influences, as well as Kenny Burrell, Joe Pass, Wes Montgomery, uh, George Benson, Pat Martino as well. And on this recording, Witzel's on electric guitar, Brian Ho on the Hammond B3, Jason Lewis on drums, and Dan Zinn on tenor saxophone on three tracks. And we've got a mix of Witzel's originals and some tunes that you may know. The first one is a title track, Feeling It, Witzel's original. It's a medium swinging bluesy melody uh, that's taken together by Witzel and Zinn on tenor sax. Interestingly, it's a like a 17-bar form hmm. to the melody. Uh, so musicians will know what I'm talking about. Other people, uh, you know, usually a song will have like a, a well, 16, 16 bars. 24, <laughs> 32. This, yeah. When I count it, at least the way I figure it, it's like 17 bars. Uh, it's got cool syncopation hits in the ninth bar, and it changes up to like a three three beat. So if I count them as three beats from the 13th bar, uh, then there's two more bars of four after that to get to 17. I might be doing oh, yeah. that wrong, but that's the way it makes sense to me. Um, anyway, it's got a, a heavy walking organ bass. Uh, it repeats. Uh, and then there's a contrasting 16 bar theme without the bass walk. So you get some nice contrast there with repeating sax and riffs uh, over a syncopated organ and guitar chords uh, that build up the tension. Witzel comes out of that soloing, uh, starting on a rhythmic repeated note. Uh, You'll get a sense for his tone here. It's very soft and fluid, but he does have clear articulation. He mixes in a lot of little tumbling figures, agile bursts of notes in shorter phrases. Uh, He gets some tasty double stops, ringing pearly notes too. And then Zinn comes in on tenor. And uh, contrasting, he's got this very husky and confident uh, you know, burly sax tone. Uh, he mixes in a lot of fast, topsy-turvy licks and some fun high honks. 
Uh, Hole follows up on Hammond with a rhythmic solo, uh, getting some tension building chords and a little Leslie play to whip up the tension. Uh, I think he should be a little bit louder in this track and on the rest of the album uh, too. I wanted to reach over and turn his organ up uh, mm. because uh, I thought it could be a little louder in the mix. Yeah, I think this whole album was uh, was it this one? Um, I thought the, uh, the the organ was pretty quiet actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit quiet in the mix. It's sort of um, in the in the back somehow, and I kind of, yeah. of course, loving the organ, and we want to be the yeah, one to be right up front. Line. So yeah. Uh, the next one, uh, a good old jazz standard from Sigmund Romberg, "Softly as in a Morning Sunrise." This Love one's the got title. A, yeah, mm -hmm. a skittery drum brush intro brings in Witzel on some heavy chords uh, and then into the famous melody over organ bass. Uh, he trades off strains with Ho as they work in a cool modulation to the melody. Uh, Ho is off on a solo first. He builds tension with rising figures nicely, but again, he could be louder. Uh, Witzel's solo is next. He keeps it moving intensely with rhythmic licks being driven by feisty cymbals from Lewis. Uh, and he has some cool interval ideas in his lines as well. The guitar and organ trade eights with Lewis's drumming going around uh, before hitting the melody again. And then they jam out on a minor vamp uh, for Witzel to play some more and get in some bendy tones before it fades out. And we're going to get uh, the Paul McCartney tune, Norwegian Wood, another song everyone knows. Is that, I think this is John Lennon's song. Is it? It's Lennon McCartney, but yeah, I'm pretty sure it's John Lennon. I, oh, I always thought McCartney wrote this one. Anyway, uh, ringing guitar notes and a rubato oh, organ and cymbal wash uh, started out. And then uh, Witzel gets a 6-8 strum beat going uh, with chords before taking the melody with clear ringing notes. The organ joins uh, the guitar on the B section of the melody and adds a more ghostly backing tone. Then Witzel has an interesting solo here, starting with uplifting phrases and then turning more bluesy over the B section. He goes on with bouncy rhythmic licks and some cool slidey double stop ideas. The whole plays a solo with clean tone, uh, starting in the middle register and then working up higher. Gets more rhythmic as he goes on and he whips up the Leslie a bit when Witzel joins back in on the B section of the melody. Uh, they repeat the final phrase and Witzel has a few chords and tasty notes to finish it off. Yeah, I thought the, um, what is it, the uh, guitar solo, and this was really odd for the yeah. song, nothing like what I would have expected. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page, uh, Norwegian Wood, written mainly by John Lennon, with oh, lyrical okay. contributions from Paul McCartney, so I guess we were both right. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> right. And John sings track, it, though, so anyway. Yeah. The next yeah. track is uh, another Witzel original, Beyond Beijing. Interesting. Uh, starts with a cool 6-8 riff with the bass line and chords on guitar. It makes a funky groove for an 8-bar intro. Then Witzel takes the minor melody with hints of blues. It's in an A-A-B-A form, and Zinn joins in on sax, doubling the guitar part on the repeat of the first section. The B section has contrasting rising phrases that lift it up. And Zinn is up for a solo first. He's a bit more smooth in his lines in this track. He makes it intense, mixing in some fast triplet phrases and fat lower register notes uh, and finishes it off with a bluesy touch. Then Witzel follows, starts out really chilled. I like how he builds on compact rhythmic phrases and works them into longer lines, getting into higher register phrases at the end. Uh, they connect it back to the melody for another run without an organ solo on this track. We're going to get a Gershwin favorite, I Loves You, Porgy. Yeah. Whittle does a solo rendition of this, starting rubato, but not too slow. He works around the melody with thick chords and little counterlines, joins himself 
on an overdubbed melody track, and then he gets into tempo with chords and bass line on the other. Uh, it has bounce and rhythmic motion, and he works up to a nice solo climax on the other track uh, with a nice extended original ending to the tune. We've got the Alan Lerner tune, If I Leave You. Uh, they give this one a clicky Latin groove. Uh, Ho makes a nice pulse with organ bass figures. Witzel brings charm to the melody with syncopation and clear articulation. And the organ takes over on the bridge, and they switch up to a swing for a nice contrast. Ho comes out of the break for a solo. There's a lot of bounce in his swinging lines and some punchy chords, working up to some shimmering high register lines for a climax. And Lewis has a nice clicky groove going on under Witzel's solo, and his phrases are punchy and very happy sounding with some more fun interval and little falling ideas. They give the melody another run and add a little rhythmic outro to match the beginning. Uh, it's a very fun and happy sounding tune, I thought. Track seven, another Witzel original, Ms. Information. Very That's nice. Little pun MS there. Period. Yeah, nice title. Yeah. It's a medium swinging tune with an eight bar intro or Witzel to play some solo phrases over. And then Zinn joins back in on sax with Witzel on the melody. It's got some fun tumbling phrases. On the B section, sax and guitar exchange phrases. Witzel solos first, starting from a series of rising repeated notes. He has a lot of rhythmic variety in this one, but builds nice melodies that resolve. And Zinn is next. He's more relaxed at the beginning, working into more speedy short phrases and a very good climax to this solo. And Lewis gets some drumming time over low organ chords before they give the melody another round. We're going to end off with a tune that uh, I always really liked, uh, a Nat Adderley song, uh, The Old Country. And uh, Diane Reeves sings a version of this uh, that I really love. Uh, anyway, this one gets an extended intro with meaty minor rhythmic chords from Witzel. Ho joins in in the next time around, and Lewis adds punchy fills. Witzel takes the melody, adds tasty chords to himself as he goes along. Nice drumming from Lewis behind him here. Ho gets an organ solo first, and he's got a really good uh, melodic ideas connecting in this one. He peppers in some bluesy licks, and uh, some of the fastest runs we've heard him play so far on the album, mm. uh, finishing with some punchy chords. Uh, Witzel's solo has good bounce, a lot of double stops, and some cool tricky rhythmic licks. And after another melody run, uh, they give an outro section like the beginning, but Lewis adds some more drum fill intensity, and they stretch it out with uh, some final tasty chords. So I thought it's a tasty and enjoyable recording, nice jazz guitar playing from Witzel. I like the tunes and arrangements, some familiar stuff here, and his original tunes are fun. And Zinn's sax it kind of adds some bravado and intensity to the recording which i thought was good because both witzel and ho are kind of laid back personalities and uh tone wise too uh in a little softer playing style so the sax adds a little bit of oomph to those tracks and i i really think ho's organ makes good chord layers and he has interesting bass lines i just wanted some more volume uh out of the organ uh overall but i enjoyed his playing as well in the recording yeah that was kind of my big problem with the album too is the organ was way in the back i really wanted to hear i wanted it to impact more mm. but it was kind of you had to kind of listen in for it anyway last week you had mentioned that there was that one album's like oh you, you you had said to me oh you like to listen to the jazz at lunch so you want something to lift you up well this was ideal for that yeah, yeah. it was really a great record for me to hear in the middle of the day when i was at work straightforward 
enjoyable. Lots of classics, familiar tunes. I know it's got an organ on it. It's got yeah. a guitar in it. What's not to like? Yeah, <laughs> it's really good stuff. And it, the playing is all really good. So yeah. I liked it a lot. I liked um, Witzel's playing a lot too. Yeah. All right, and uh, well, we're gonna yeah. go back to uh, the Greek idea. Greece. I always yeah. like going back to yeah, Greece. Go back to Greece. I like to go <laughs> yeah. there right now. Yeah, um, I wouldn't mind being there now myself. Some nice tzatziki would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Uh, this one came out this month too. Uh, Apostolos Leventopoulos, Greek guitarist. Uh, Levin, uh, I think it's on his own music label. Uh, After the Spirit, mm. it's called. Another organ trio from Greece. Yeah. Um, Leventopoulos is a guitarist. He's got a classical guitar degree and a bachelor's in jazz guitar from Berklee College of Music. He's performed at festivals and clubs in Greece and abroad, uh, U.S., Brazil, U.K., France, other countries. And he's got an extensive discography as a session musician, and this is his second album as a leader. Now, I'd like to tell you, his first one uh, came out, uh, I'm not sure if it was two years ago. It's called Acoustic Songs. This is really worth checking out as well. It's not jazz, but it's really great acoustic guitar playing it shows a whole other side of his uh his uh, playing style and what he can do uh, so if you like this one check that out too i was listening to his other one today uh and interestingly he's also composed arranged and performed music for a number of theater and dance plays and performances for the greek national theater hmm. the national theater of northern greece and other theater and dance uh companies so seems a very well-rounded uh musical guy and well, joining him, George Contraforis, the oh, godfather yeah. of Greek jazz, as we uh, found out. Now, we've heard him a number of times, uh, of course, in our episode 69, all Greek to me, with his own right. recording, uh, Deep South, uh, the George Contraforis trio. Uh, and in the same episode, uh, one of our, my favorite piano tree recordings this year, Broken Blue by Spiral Trio. Oh, and Country Forest was the uh, former piano teacher of the pianist in that group, Spiros uh, Manissis. So uh, you know, he's a kind of uh, educational figure in Greece. And we also heard him in episode 61 with uh, Demetrius Angelicus on uh, Long Way Home. That was Mallet Maestros, the, the Vibes mm. recording there. And also, of course, we first heard him in episode 64, or no, that's not the first time. What am I saying? Uh, second time. Uh, Menage Trio on uh, Safe mm. Place. The uh, Our friend Yakovos Simonides' Yako Organ Trio. Mm. And uh, so, rounding out the trio, this time, Alexandros Sistakis on drums. And all compositions here are by Leventopoulos. So all original music. And overall, we're going to have a really bluesy vibe on this uh, recording, although there's only one real 12-bar blues. We start off with a great title, The Sinner. Yeah. And uh, it's off to a bluesy start. Guitar licks alternating with a kind of stop-time organ chords for 16 bars. The drums join in, uh, lightly keeping time on cymbals. There's a little contrasting bridge section and a return to the licks and organ exchange. And then Leventopoulos launches into his first solo. 
He's got a really interesting, nice, biting articulation on his licks. Uh, very big contrast to the previous album we heard. Um, bluesy double stops, cool interval ideas. And I like how he can mix up fluid and staccato lines of notes. Uh, usually players are favor one kind of style or the other, but we get a uh, nice contrast in his play. Uh, Contraforce has been keeping a bouncy bass line going with choppy chords. Uh, a few longer lines and accented hits. He's up next for us organ solo, and he starts with some spaced out little phrases. He works into more skittering and bluesy lines, often using choppy phrasing that makes it very rhythmic. And he gets into some more harmonically advanced ideas in licks and a big rising glissando into a bluesy finish. Uh, they go around the theme again and uh, give it a big gospely amen finish for mm. Leventopolis to crank out some final bluesy licks. It's a good, fun track to start it out. Yeah, I have those exact same words, big gospely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Made, it, made a big impression. Yeah. Two, lots of it. Lots of what? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, this one starts Lots with of us. awesomeness. Yeah. <laughs> Super funky and choppy organ groove for eight bars from Contraforce. Uh, Destakis joins on drums and they go around it again and uh, then the guitar comes in with a little rip and short fun and funky phrases double stops, bends that goes on over uh, the one chord kind of groove for about 32 bars and then there's a contrasting uh, 16 bars that goes to the 4 chord basically and then as it returns uh, for 8 bars uh, for Leventopoulos to finish up uh, Contraforce is up next. He starts with some middle register rhythmic ideas, a uh, little harmonic exploration, and he gets into some higher register bluesy licks with this very cool ghostly tone on the organ. Uh, the guitar returns for some more connected rhythmic lines, still funky, but with some more harmonic exploration too. They return to the original riff melody idea and they take it out in tempo uh, with a big finish. Track three is called A Blues Story. And it's kind of a, a slow ballad with a real burn uh, that mm. goes uh, from contrasts of soft and subtle, subtle to exploding with passion uh, throughout the whole track. Uh, this gives Leventopoulos a nice chance to show off his varied articulations and more fluid side. Contrafors has great organ swells underneath, Leslie effects whipping it up to climaxes and spots. Uh, now, interestingly, the notes on Bandcamp for the album says Hammond organ. Uh, but the, the video on YouTube with the studio recordings of this shows him playing the same, uh, Nord C1 Hammond clone, uh, that we saw him with, with Yakovos, that red organ. Uh, I don't know. It sounds great either way. <laughs> it really does make you you know believe it's, it's uh, Hammond. Uh, if this is that same uh, organ, great tones on it. Uh, Leventopoulos has some really biting licks in the climax of his solo. And, um, Tustakis on drums shows some great uh, playing here. He changes up from light to soft, driving and bringing out the kind of 12-8 subdivided feel, uh, pushing it really hard in sections. And uh, Contraforce has a short playful solo in this one too. Then it ends up with a fluid little guitar, guitar cadenza and uh, nice little tumbling lines. Track 4 is called The Trap. And this one's more of a kind of faster, hard boppy tune uh, that has a curious 28-bar 
lengths to the phrase. Uh, the melody has some <laughs> tricky runs uh, for Leventopoulos to pull off, and they go around the theme twice. Uh, Leventopoulos takes two choruses uh, for a solo with lots of speedy lines. I like his unique kind of choppy articulation and slightly muted notes. And Contraforce is more boppy in his solo, it's, although it's rhythmic and very clear in attack as well. They go around the melody again and they vamp out on the ending chords for some drums to get busy on. Uh, and then there's some final licks uh, on guitar from Leventopoulos. Track five is Open Roads. This is a really interesting one. It's a tune that starts with a kind of deli delicate melody. It shows off, again, uh, Leventopoulos' more fluid side pretty sliding figures, but it changes up suddenly to this really contrasting, ominous, minor, and kind of dangerous sounding section. It gets a heavier beat before it returns again to the more uplifting theme. So it's, I don't know if it's open roads, it's like you don't know where you're going, uh, and different turns uh, bring you to, you know, different kinds of scenes. It's a very interesting contrast. Contraforce solos first here, starting on the darker section. He has little phrases of staccato notes that build into more runs, pick up some higher held chords that build up the harmonic tension in a real sense of doom. Um, <laughs> Leventopoulos brings back the sunshine on his solo for a while, but he carries on through the darker section with biting licks. Then he reaches the other side again peacefully, but the tune ends interestingly unresolved and it kind of leaves you floating on this hanging cord there so it's an interesting little road trip of a song now we're going to get our one true 12 bar blues the traffic jam blues for track six um Leventopoulos swaps tricky picked lines with organ chords and drum hits for the first eight bars, and then a swing together to the end of the phrase. Uh, they go around it twice, and then it's guitar solo time. Nice bluesy hmm. playing here, really biting articulation again, some high octave notes. Uh, Leventopoulos hammers out some fun rhythmic double stops into chords over a high held organ chord. And then Contraforce continues on to start his solo, uh, very relaxed at the beginning, but it builds into more speedy runs and some fun triplet ideas. He gets some rambunctious rhythmic rolling figures in this one, too. They finish it up with a couple more runs through the melody. We've got Full Cycle for track seven. It's a medium four-beat tempo tune. Uh, Tostakis evolves the beat from light clicks into more of a subdivided drive as it goes under fluid lines from Leventopoulos, some nice sliding double stops over sustained chords. Contraforce gets a solo on this one with a clean tone, uh, leaving interesting spaces between notes and, and phrases as well. And he kind of stretches out the rhythmic feels uh, here. He's not being uh, so percussive and exact as uh, previous tracks. Uh, uh, the drums return for a solo, a gliding feel of smooth slides into faster figures, uh, creating an uplifting mood over the swelling uh, harmonies. Or rather, that was guitar that returns, I'm sorry. Uh, they mm -hmm. go through the fluid melody again and make a little extra tension at the end. Some wandering guitar lines resolve with a final organ chord. Then we've got After the Spirit for track eight. This one's got a driving even beat. It starts with an eight-measure intro of drums and rhythmic organ chords. Here, uh, Leventopoulos joins kind of in with the organ, and they work the rhythmic melody riffs together. The tune alternates 
sort of 16 bars of the straight beat into another equal section of swing. Uh, and here, Leventhopoulos breaks away with a solo melody line before returning to the previous even section once more with the organ. Uh, he's up for a guitar solo then, and it's swinging right along through with these rapid lines of clear notes, choppy chords on organ behind him. He's really bursting with notes in his lines here, more cool interval ideas, and Contraforce also has a good rhythmic bounce in his solo on this one, more speedy lines, and it goes off through another round of the melody to finish it off. We're going to end it with Morning Song. This is a slow ballad tune with a pretty melody. Uh, he really lets the guitar notes ring out here, tasty little slides and double stops over gospely organ chords from Contraforce. Uh, the drums are on the brushes uh, going through on this one. There's a nice little spot at about a minute and 24 seconds where beats three and four are just empty. And mm. it takes just a little breath uh, from the tempo before going on. It makes you sit up and notice. Contraforce has a great tone going for his solo here. He mixes up playful and bluesy ideas into some ripping chords and another gospely finish uh, to the solo. And then Leventopoulos returns with a really lovely fluid and melodic solo connecting back to the melody and a tasty end with some soft guitar rhythmic figures and double stops. So this is a really enjoyable recording. There's an overall bluesy atmosphere going on, but a lot of contrast in the tunes, all of which are, as I mentioned, Leventopoulos' original compositions. He's got great chops, varied articulation, gives a lot of nuance to his solos, and Contraforce is great as always, uh, both in backing and in his energetic solos. And on drums, uh, Tsitsakis adjusts seamlessly to what's happening, always adding just enough drum uh, ideas to the mix, but never overpowering. And uh, as I mentioned, be sure to check out that uh, previous acoustic guitar recording. Uh, I think uh, you'll see another side to Leventopoulos playing as well. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more of his guitar playing because it's uh, really energetic. He's got good chops and, uh, yeah, really fine guitar playing. Yeah, you emphasize the uh, blues elements on this album. I really picked up on the gospel. There's a lot of really gospel yeah, kind of yeah. uh, sort of feeling uh, phrases in it. Um, yeah, it's, it's really straightforward and very good-feeling album, another one of those that I enjoyed hearing. Um yeah, the, the players all have the feel of the gospel down really well. And that's always a little startling to me. Like I talked mm. about earlier about, you know, how European orchestras couldn't get the swing rhythm and the Rhapsody in Blue about 30 years ago. And now everybody seems to have these um, mm. these forms down. It sounds really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, good solid playing. Um, yeah, I, I just wrote about the sound that uh, Leventopoulos gets. It's pretty clean. You know, the electric guitar, uh, there's mm. a shade of distortion in there. Um, let's see, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, this would be a great night out at a jazz club. I was just thinking, oh, yeah. uh, one more reason to go to Greece, jazz <laughs> organ trios. There seemed to be a yeah. lot of them there. Yeah. yeah, this was really fun. It was it was good. I mean, I, I enjoyed the kind of gospel twist. I haven't been hearing too much of that in uh, jazz recordings recently, so yeah, it was good to hear. Yeah, it was really good. A little and more traditional another, blues, gospel, you know. Yeah, so we found another really great uh, Greek guitarist to uh, enjoy. And, uh, yeah, we're we gonna just have can't to get away, there. <laughs> can't get away from Contraforce. He's like a, he's recording something all the time. It seems yeah. like uh, with oh, all good these for players. Him. That's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So there you have it. Uh, we did our uh, summer strumming, and now you got your fall frets. Get enough guitar music to last you through uh, the season. Yeah. Is there going to be any winter uh, <laughs> winter wobbling or whatever? <laughs> what can we call it? I don't know. Might be too cold for uh, guitar, yeah. uh, at least know. outdoors anyway. Depends what comes out. Yeah. So um, next weekend, uh, we'll have uh, kind of a wind thing. I've got some trumpet. Well, you're you've gonna got have a trumpet thing. You've got some recorder. really exciting ones. Yeah, yeah. I've so. got a good recorder album, and I want to introduce this artist, but I'm not gonna tell you who it is until next week. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, she's really good. There's a record. You don't really have that many recorder players out there that yeah. are kind of making their mark, but I think she is this one. This oh. particular woman, Lucy Horse. I'll tell you who it is. Oh, you told us. All right. Well, I won't say the trumpet players' names, but there uh, yeah. there's some really fiery stuff going on. If you want to know what it is after you hear this podcast, right? Well, then go to Deezer. If you don't have an account there, you set yourself up with one, or you can also come over, and I'll have that posted on Facebook as well later in the day, Monday Japan time. You can get the recordings before next week's podcast, which will be episode eighty-eight. That sounds like a lucky number somehow, but yeah, um, yeah. eighty-eight. That's about it. All I can I, think of. That's it. That's yeah. I can go listen to my Taylor Swift album now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you do that. I'm I going to uh, get this one mixed up because we're actually recording on Saturday night a day early because I've got a little yeah. getaway this weekend. So I, I think um, I've had the proper amount of alcohol to <laughs> listen to Taylor Swift. So. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's bit. right. I need bit. more than that to get through that. But <laughs> anyway, you can find out about all the bad things her boyfriends did. And uh, well, she might be over that though. That's the thing. That's why I'm thinking she might be moving closer to adult music. Could be. Yeah, let's hope. Yeah. Let's hope. Hmm. All right. So uh, check out that playlist and tune in again next week. Also remember, check out Tom Gawker's podcast. Something came from Baltimore to get some jazzy blues and R&B interviews. The link will be in the description. And thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for the glowing adult music logo that catches your eye and makes you want to walk in through the door to music for the mature mind. So keep listening, and we'll see you again next week for episode 88.